All right, you know how I keep saying this is the show you need to listen to? Well, I'm sorry if I shot my bolt a little too soon, but seriously, this is the show you need to listen to. The first caller asked me basically to elucidate or explain my relationship, at least my current relationship, to nationalism, to borders, to immigration, the whole hog. And I unpacked my heart and my thoughts as far and as wide and as deep as I could muster and gave a full satellite view of where I stand and why, and hopefully this will clear up a lot of the confusion, which is completely understandable about what's going on in uh, my thinking, and hopefully it will provoke or stimulate discussion, and I look forward to your feedback on the state of the nation of my thought. The second, well, we have a single mom back, but this one had a special approach to her circumstances, which I found, well, at times got rather biologically blunt, shall we say, but I think provides further insight into the thinking that goes behind the creation of this kind of uh, disaster that's overtaking society with a Mexican component that I think you will find also very instructive. The third caller is going through a very brutal situation trying to talk about his concerns about Islam to the women in his life. And they are escalating almost beyond belief in order to oppose any concerns that he might have. And uh, I won't say unfortunately or fortunately, but the circumstances are that he has less choice than we might hope. So we had a long talk about that. And I think I gave him some reasons to be optimistic at the end. It's a very, very important call. Please help support these essential conversations, these life-changing conversations at freedomainradio.com slash donate, fdrurl.com slash Amazon for using the Amazon affiliate link, fdrpodcast.com. And of course, you can follow me and Twitter, under Twitter, at Stefan Molyneux. Just give us a follow, give us a share, and uh, do your part in helping to spread the wisdom that hopefully can turn the tide. All right, so first up we have Ben, who wrote in to say, you say that in a situation of coercion, ethics do not apply. Our rights and freedoms diminish, while leftist propaganda is everywhere. Immigration and race baiting are used to decrease our liberty and cause instability. It appears that the libertarian movement is not strong enough to prevent the downfall of the West. Could it be that our only resort is to align with conservatives or nationalists and engage in the political process? They may be statists, but they may also defend some of our values. Should we vote and join their campaigns? Hey, Ben, how you doing? I'm doing well, thanks, Steph. How are you? Um, well, let's just say we're, we're living in exciting times. Um, would you want to add more to, to your thoughts on this issue? Well, um, it's a long question. I think um, basically what I'm flirting with is ideas about nationalism and whether or not that might be a more well a viable option just to offer some resistance to to what's happening and particularly in europe um and i know recently you've been talking about how you're sort of wobbling towards christianity because as an institution it does uphold some western values and traditions and 
at the same time as that, I was also thinking that, well, if there's a national identity and an ethnic identity um, in Europe that we can hold to, then that may also help to sort of keep things together, as it were, and resist some of the changes. So, I mean, I've, I've no sort of, I've no problem with, or I'm completely behind all of your reasoning and the evidence um, in support of libertarianism, but we're kind of in a situation where we're not going to get it. It's like the Titanic sinking and libertarianism as a lifeboat is being guarded and we're not allowed to get on it. Some of the other lifeboats might be something like nationalism, which, you know, although isn't perfect, at least offers some resistance. Um, so, yeah, I was really wondering what your thoughts were about that kind of question. What are your thoughts first? Well, my thoughts are that it's pretty clear to me that as a white person from Europe, at least in England and, and Britain, we are being racially targeted. Um, and I can give you some examples um, as evidence to prove the point. Um, firstly, if you look at any sort of work sector or, or public sector um, group, for example, across academia or through the law, um, you'll find that almost every single ethnic group has some kind of representative organization to support its rights on the basis of identity. So it's ethnic identity. So Jews, blacks, Asians, um, even, even women as well, all have their particular groups, but white people aren't allowed it. And, you know, if racism is such a bad thing, then why is there an inconsistency? So there's that. Um, there's an unfair attention in the media given to certain events, as you've, as you often highlight, but, um, in particular in England, certain killings of, of black people, for example, Stephen Lawrence just comes up time and time again. Um, and has done for, for over a decade, whereas racist killings of white people gets basically almost no attention. And there are plenty of brutal examples, um, some of which Chris Donald, Ross, Ross Parker, Charlene Downs, all of these people have been victims but get no sympathy. And there, there's, you know, it's disproportionate. There's, a, there's an inconsistency. Um, another is, you know, welfare invasion, where the people are coming from. Now, in Syria, there's a, you know, obviously a tragic war going on. And I worked out from the figures that probably about one in every 48 people, um, have, have unfortunately been killed in Syria. But if you look at, um, some stats, for example, from South Africa, um, she, there's, there's a, a website called the African Genocide Museum, um, which documents 70,000, uh, white, um, mostly Boers killed since the end of apartheid. So that's actually, that's about one in every 64 white people in South Africa have been killed, but that gets absolutely no attention. And of course, they're not given asylum. And then there's more. I mean, I can go on. There's the school system. I, I worked as a teaching assistant a long time ago in a school. Everything was focused on diversity and, um, you know, the history was certainly skewed, but the white children were a, a small minority, but those that failed or didn't, or didn't get on, especially the males, were literally just put in a room um, unsupervised and told to get on with the day. Um, and I just can't imagine that, that any other group would have been treated that way. There are a lot of white homeless people, there are food banks, um, 
you've got cultural marketers. If, if anyone goes to do an arts degree, they get about, you know, they, they'll get a huge amount about cultural marxism, but they'll get nothing on, I don't know, Christianity, um, history, the Renaissance, the Greeks, nothing about that generally. Um, there's no rational argument for state-funded migration because we know that it causes disruption and we know that, well, some economic reports show that um, there's no balance. The, the benefits of um, people coming to UK, for example, to work, and, and, and they do offer, you know, they do provide a great contribution to society is outweighed by the welfare migration. And um, a few years ago, some statistics came out showing that about 800,000 um, publicly funded homes in Britain were occupied by foreign families. Um, so, and then when there are real problems like, you probably know about the Rotherham um, rapes when over a thousand children were groomed and, and, and many of them raped. Um, they just don't get the focus and, and ethnicity is, you know, it's not really, it's not brought up. But conversely, when you get a white person doing anything bad, their ethnicity seems to be targeted. I mean, and perhaps I'm wrong, perhaps I'm being slightly paranoid, but if you put all of that together, there's a strong argument to say that for whatever reason, we're being attacked because of our identity. We're being undermined. So there's something about our identity which... Whatever, I, I don't know why, but the status or whoever it is really dislikes and they want to subvert us and, and weaken us. And, you know, my thoughts are, well, if that's the situation and we're not going to get, we're, not, we're certainly not going to get more liberty, then what can we do? Well, as you've been sort of discussing recently, there's the Christian church, which at least upholds some Western values, but as well as that, I'm thinking, well, there's our national identity and there are nationalist parties who are prepared to sort of bring people together as a group and, and maybe, um, you know, maybe, I don't know what, but at least raise consciousness and some sort of resistance to what is a racial attack against us. Um, so, I mean, I, I can... Yeah, I mean, I can diversity in... Yeah, diversity in general just means shut up, white people, and pay up too. Right. The, the, <laughs> yeah. the, as far as diversity goes, you would you would if diversity was actually a principle, then first of all, people who didn't value diversity would not be welcome in a diverse culture. Right. So if people's cultural or religious or ideological imperatives do not value diversity, then those people would not be welcome in a diverse culture. But this is not how it works, right? And, of course, if diversity were a value, then the perspectives of white people would be as valued as everyone else's, right? Because diversity is a value. But that's not how it works. Uh, diversity is not a value. Diversity means shut up white people and pay up. Or else. Yeah. Well, I, I'm just, or else I'm we, just concerned. Are you a racist? That... We're going to try and destroy your career. We're going to try and get you fired. Like, it's a shakedown. It's a shakedown. You know, I'm, I'm just paranoid that it's, well, maybe I'm not paranoid, but it could be more than just a shakedown. Um, if you look at, as I, as I mentioned, in South Africa, you know, white people are being targeted. And, you know, as, thing, as things get worse, are we going to be made scapegoats? You know, what's going to happen in the future if we don't offer some? We don't come together as a group and say, you know, this is out of order. And that's what nationalists have been doing, you know, for decades. Then, you know, we're, we're going to be in trouble.
Well, um, you raise very uh, powerful and important issues. And um, I am fully sensitive to my history uh, as, a, as a voluntarist and my criticisms of borders and my skepticism towards the value of political action uh, and so on. And I don't want to pretend that isn't the case, so people can go and research that if they want. But when new information comes to light, only a fool doesn't adjust parameters, right? Driving down a road and there's a log on the road, you come to a stop and you, you find a way, even keep going, right? You have to adjust to new information. And there's a significant amount of new information that is, um, is important. So I have, of course, for many years said that the progress towards a truly free and peaceful society is a multi-generational process. And we don't have that kind of time anymore. Just looking at the facts. We just don't have that kind of time anymore. And so what is necessary for society to progress is that uh, free speech and the continued strong exchange of arguments in the marketplace of ideas be allowed to continue. Now, there are a number of impediments to the free exchange of ideas and the free flow of information. And they generally come from the left. And they generally involve attacking white males. And not just white males, but anybody who's on the right. Any, like I said, social justice warriors and the leftists will go over, they'll go after Herman Cain, they'll, they'll go after you know, blacks, they go after Christina Huff Summers, they go after other people, they go after gay people, they go after Milo Yiannopoulos. And so it's not just white males, but it's anybody who opposes this narrative of endless warfare between incompatible groups. This is what the left proposes, that the workers are always in conflict against the rich, and the blacks will always be in conflict against the whites, and the, um, the women will always be in conflict against the men. And it's just sowing the seeds of discord is the way that you take down a society. You, you set every group against every other group, and you oppress and repress a particular group until... It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So they say, well, you know, Europeans are bigoted and violent and so on, and so uh, white Europeans. So what you do is you keep oppressing and repressing and putting down and using the government to take from uh, white European males until when? Until they get angry. And then you say, aha, you see, we were right all along. And that is a fantastic way to control people. So the level uh, at which a public discourse can occur and society can advance is at a very low ebb at the moment. We are in the grip of a semi-fascistic leftist theocracy that is stifling and squelching and attacking all who disagree with dogma. I mean, they make the Catholic Church look like the Algonquin Round Table as far as promoting debate goes. And that's because they don't have the facts on their side, so all they can do is use verbal abuse. I mean, this is the 
As Socrates said, when the debate is over, the first person to use slander is the loser. Slander is the tool of the loser. And for me, the necessity for the conversation to continue is primary. If there's not a possibility of having a rational conversation with reason and evidence, a back and forth, if that doesn't happen, there is no such thing as civilization. Civilization ceases to exist when a robust debate about reason, facts, and evidence is no longer allowed. And the West's commitment, I mean, back before John Milton wrote Areopagitica, which is one of the founding documents of sort of the free speech movement, the West's commitment to free speech has been incredibly strong, which is why the leftists have to impose it through aggression, ostracism, economic attack, and all that kind of stuff. All of the verbal abuse tactics which uh, occur. Now, if that conversation is not allowed to continue, then in a very real and fundamental way, Ben, you and I are not allowed to continue. I would not find it really worthwhile as an intellectual getting out of bed in the morning if I could not freely express reason, facts, evidence, and arguments. I mean, I have my family. I have my friends. But it would be a tragic retreat into non-participation and a tragic backsliding of hundreds if not thousands of years of Western development in creating an arena of verbal combat known as free speech. Now, the government is the agency that can quell free speech. The leftists, you know, they'll slander you, they'll attack you, and, and they'll try to destroy your source of income and all of that. But that's just being unpopular. That's not the same thing as being muzzled, as being silenced. Now, if the government continues down its path of appeasement of groups who do not value free speech, come on, let's not kid ourselves and let's not even pretend that the Marxists and the fundamentalist Muslims and the leftists are no friends of free speech. To put it as mildly as humanly possible, they are no friends of free speech. I am concerned, if not downright afraid at the moment, that we have a de facto, if not de jure, which means a socially enforced, in, generally it means a socially enforced rather than legally enforced censorship as it stands. And people are shying away from speaking their minds to the point where if the government should take that right, it would be taking a holster, not a gun, because 
people don't exercise their freedom of speech, so if the government were to take it away, then um, I'm not sure people would miss it that much because they really don't have a lot of freedom of speech at the moment because they cannot raise concerns that are politically incorrect. Now, the reasons why you have such a crazy idea as hate speech. Hate speech. Well, that just means your words are making me uncomfortable and I have no facts or skill of rhetoric or confidence in my expositionary skills to respond to your arguments. So I'm going to label your speech as hate speech because I hate the fact that I can't argue back. And uh, Milton's argument hundreds of years ago was basically that if there's a bad idea, let's give it the most public exposure possible so that we can combat it, that we can counteract it. The degree of propaganda, as you point out, that is occurring, you know, when Donald Trump recently gave his foreign policy speech and he said, the West is a great culture. We should be proud of our civilization. That is a shocking thing for a lot of people to hear. And I don't know, I mean, I've always had more sympathy towards that viewpoint. Maybe it's because I grew up in a proud and nationalistic culture, which was a second, post-Second World War British culture. Maybe it's because I went to an all-boys boarding school for a time and therefore was not exposed to some of the toxic appeasement turbo-cockishness of certain feminine instruction capacities. But, you know, in the words of the late Lizard King, philosopher one J. Morrison, the West is the best. It is. It certainly is for people like me. And I assume for people like you and people like everyone out there listening to this, the West is the best. No question. Because the West has a universal morality, and that is the strength of the West, but it is also the downfall of the West. Because the West is failing to realize the degree to which Western universalism is unique among cultures. There's no universalism in most strands of Islam. There are the Muslims, and then there are what are called the Kafirs, the Kafirs, who are the unbelievers, to put it as nicely as you can. And they have no particular rights, and you can lie to them, you can torture them, you can wage war against them. I mean, there is no universalism. There's us and them. There's the in-group, and then there's the out-group. And this is true of a wide variety of cultures. And the West's universalism, combined with its inability to empathize with anti-universalism, is a, is a downfall. And the West, of course, having enjoyed the fruits of very hard-won and bitterly fought-for freedoms, enjoys those freedoms so much that it's incomprehensible that outgroups could want to come in and not participate in those freedoms. You know, if you're at a buffet and a starving man staggers in, do you really expect him not to eat? It would make no sense. No sense at all. So in the West, we enjoy our freedom so much that we can't imagine that groups could come in who don't 
want those freedoms, who want to deny those freedoms to us and their descendants. It's hard to imagine. And one of the facts that was withheld from me now, I did read the bell curve in the 90s, but I've read thousands and thousands of books. It was one of these ones that sort of popped up in my consciousness and then kind of dribbled away, which is kind of what the media is all about, right? It's move on, move on, move on, move on. And keep people distracted with new propaganda so they don't remember the old facts. And it just sort of fell by the wayside. But as I began to see the rising ethnic conflicts within the West, and let's not fool ourselves, let's just call it for what it is, it's ethnic conflicts, I began to look more, and, and huge amounts of data had been gathered since the early 90s when the bell curve came out. The bell curve, for those who don't know, um, was talking about the role of intelligence in American society, and there was an infamous chapter, chapter 13, which said that uh, blacks have a, a lower IQ than whites and Asians in America, and blacks have a higher IQ in America than they do in sub-Saharan Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa, 70. Blacks in America average 85. Whites, 100. East Asians, a little over 100. Mestizos, uh, uh, Muslims are 85 to 90, depending on who you talk to. And I began to look at the new data. So I remembered the book, and I thought, I wonder if this, this could help. And a fundamental thing to understand about the mind, the brain, evolution, in-group preferences, is that every level of intelligence seeks to create a society that advances its needs the best. The brain is an organ, and all organs seek to reproduce and, of course, human beings have the unique capacity to adapt their environment to their requirements rather than to tr simply intergenerationally attempt to adapt to the environment. And so low IQ groups view higher IQ societies with a mixture of desire and resentment. Desire and resentment. They want the fruits of the higher IQ societies. But they can't compete with the higher IQ groups. Again, these are all generalizations, tons of exceptions, but, you know, this is a planet-wide zoom out. With lower intelligence comes higher confidence. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. With lower intelligence in general, comes, comes two things. Number one is higher sociability. And number two is higher confidence. So, for instance, blacks in many studies in America rate themselves the very highest in ability even after they score, in general, the lowest in results. And lower intelligence is, again, often associated with higher sociability. You know, there are Hispanic block parties and everyone is having fun together, and it's a great thing. But there's not a lot of J Japanese block parties. 
because higher intelligence tends to be less sociable. That means that lower intelligence groups are better at self-organizing and better at acting collectively than higher IQ groups. Which is why the higher IQ groups tend to fail in a state of society where organization and consistency and in-group preferences rule the ballot box. I'm just going to skirt the whole issue of women. I've talked about it before quite a bit. But as far as sociability goes and in-group preferences go, it's hard to beat that. Hard to beat the verisex. So also, uh, other information that I was not privy to. Now, was it out there? I don't know if it was out there 10 years ago when I was starting. I know that for a lot of people, this information has been gathered recently. And I also know, having read Ann Coulter's Adios America, which everybody needs to read, by the way, agree with it or not, it is foundational to this election cycle in the U.S. And if you care at all about politics or want to understand the Donald Trump phenomenon even remotely, you need to read Adios America by Ann Coulter, where she points out that you can't even find basic information on the number of immigrants. You know, the estimates of illegal immigration in the United States range from 11 million, which is the official estimate, to over 30 million, which is the calculated effect. Criminality. She says you can find out how many Samoans have radios. You can't find out crime rates by various groups. And you know that that's a bad sign. We live in this weird 1984-style world, or actually it's a world sort of like later on in Atlas Shrugged. In Atlas Shrugged, Anne writes and says, you could only get the news by inverting whatever was being reported. You could only find it. They say, there's no riots in Wyoming. So it's a lie. Okay, there's riots in Wyoming, right? And so I didn't know, and, and nobody knew, and nobody knows in many ways. Officially, like officially I think until the last round of crime statistics, Hispanics or Mestidos were, were bundled in with whites, even though they have vastly different crime rates. What well, didn't know, wasn't aware. It wasn't reported. So the information is being gleaned out now. The information is being available now. And with new information, we must, if there's a log in the road, we have to drive around it or remove it. You can't just keep driving because it wasn't there for the last 100 miles. Therefore, you can't just keep going. I mean, you can, but you'll just crash. I didn't know that uh, illegal immigrants had twice the welfare usage of natives and sorry, three times, you know, twice the sorry, twice the the um, welfare usage of natives and many times more that of East Asians and whites. Middle Eastern IQ. These are not perfect statistics, but they're important to at least review as a starting place. Middle Eastern IQ: Afghanistan eighty four, Libya eighty three, Egypt eighty one, Iran eighty four, Turkey ninety, Iraq. 87, Saudi Arabia, 84, Yemen, 85, Syria, 83, United Arab, Arab Emirates, 84, Israel, 95. Of course, there's the Sephardic Jews, the Ashkenazi Jews, and then the Palestinians uh, and uh, other Middle Eastern groups. Jordan, 84, Lebanon, 82, um, Oman, 83, Kuwait, 86, Qatar, clocking in at the heart-rending 78, Bahrain, 83, Cyprus, 91. Wasn't aware of these facts. They weren't, I don't, either they weren't around or weren't publicized or I never came across them 10 years ago. Blood-related marriages. Blood-related marriages 
can take 10 to 18 IQ points off a gene line. Well, blood-related marriages in Algier, 34% of them in Bahrain. It's 46%. And these are just the recorded ones. There are probably a lot more. Egypt, 33%. Nubia, 80%. Iraq, 60%. Jordan, 64%. Kuwait, 64%. Lebanon, 42%. Libya, 48%. Mauritania, 47%. Qatar, 54%. Saudi Arabia, 67%. That's more than two-thirds. Syria, 40%. Tunisia, 39%. United Arab Emirates, 54%. Yemen, 45%. You know, it's been estimated that um, if England, for instance, were to ban cousin marriages, well, duh, ban cousin marriages, it would stem Islamic immigration enormously. In England, polygamy is illegal. Yet out of cultural sensitivity, Muslims are allowed to bring in multiple wives, each, each of which qualify for welfare. So information, the other thing that I would mention as well is when I started 10 years ago, it was prior to, it, to the, my attempt to bring reason to the world. And when you try to bring reason to the world, you have to be aware of what's happening. I mean, if you set up your lemonade stand in the deep woods and nobody comes by, you might want to think about moving. Aren't you committed to your lemonade stand? I am. That's why I'm moving. And we've got a presentation called The Death of Reason, which talks just about how not just irrational, but anti-rational, the majority of people are. You have to talk to people where they are. There's no point pretending that people are somewhere other than or some group different than what they are. You have to meet people where they are. And right now, the rational arguments of UPB Peaceful parenting. Well, demographically, there is no possibility of a multi-generational solution for the West. Because there aren't enough generations left, and the generations are too damn small. There is no possibility of a multi-generational solution, which means we have to act in the here and now. And who is the group or which groups in society are the groups most likely not to agree with me or you? That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who agrees with you. What matters is, do they agree that the conversation should continue? I don't care if somebody disagrees with me. I care that they care about free speech. Because if there is no free speech, there's no civilization. There is only brutality, conformity, aggression against children, subjugation of women. There is nothing left. But a resurgence of medievalism with all of the grim, satanic, world-ending weaponry that the free market helped produce then the brief flash of freedom in the West will have done little more than arm savages until the end of time. So my question is not who agrees with me. My question is who agrees that the conversation should continue. In other words, who, if they had power, would not silence me? 
That's all I care about at the moment. Now, looking around the world, if certain groups get into power, they will silence me. And they won't silently me by saying, be quiet. They will silence me by separating my head from my body or throwing me into jail. We should not fool ourselves about that fact. And so to me, and this is why I'm doing what I'm doing at the moment. If you disagree with me, but you agree that I should be free to speak, you are my brother. And I am your undying and steadfast ally. If you think I'm crazy, I have no problem with you, as long as you don't want me institutionalized. If you think I'm a bad guy, I have no problem with you, as long as you will let me continue to speak, as I will let you continue to speak. I would never in my wildest dreams imagine locking a human being up or lashing him or beheading him for what he thinks and says. That is the Western tradition, and it is held by Western nationalists, and it is held by statists who accept and believe in freedom of speech. It is accepted and believed by Christians. It is accepted and believed by most white people because of the momentum of European history and its traditions and American history and its traditions. America has a stronger commitment to freedom of speech than just about any other country in the world. It does have a First Amendment, which is not the case with other countries. All who accept freedom of speech are my allies in this conflict. And all who want people jailed or punished or, I say attacked. I say attacked because lives can be destroyed without the state. But all who attempt through the power of the state or the power of abuse, economic attack, all of those who attempted to shut down the debate that is civilization are civilization ending brain viruses. All who defend the power of speech are my steadfast and undying friends and allies at the moment. And all whose cultures and paranoias and hatreds and terrors and panic attacks and puffy jiggling arms wish to scream down the civilization defining power of words are my enemies and the enemies of all who value freedom. So if there are people in society who are working to maintain freedom of speech, I am with them.
Does that help? Yeah, that helps a lot. Thanks, Steph. Um, I think uh, you know there there are examples of nationalists in in the UK who have been doing some really brave things. Um, for example, um, with the Rotherham scandal, it took several nationalists many years to actually break that issue open. And when they tried to, they were sort of shouted down as racist and so forth. So it took a great deal of work. Um, another point is that some of them have actually gone into the Rotherham Council offices, shouted at people, held people to account, and you know basically publicly embarrassed them on video, which at least offers some resistance. Because um, I'm concerned that you know we, or, or at least English people at least, still hold to these values of sort of equality and tolerance and the idea that democracy is good when clearly the left don't and clearly the people and many of the people not all of course but many of the people who are coming into Europe are relentlessly um, tribalistic they've got strong ethnic traditions and it doesn't even sort of dawn on them that other people should be treated equally they come first so you know, in that in that kind of situation, it sort of appears to me that Europeans are starting to lose the option to hold to these sort of liberal ideals and will need to revert back to just basic in-group preference. Um, because otherwise, you know, if we if you offer if you offer someone ten ten pounds and they don't give you anything back, then you, you're going to be poor. Um, so. You know, these, these sort of liberal values are, are futile in a situation where, you know, people aren't going to reciprocate. Um, but I, you know, I, I do hear what you're saying. You know, if, if, um, you know, if someone is on the right or, or, you know, there might be people on the left who defend freedom of speech, then, you know, if that's something that they're prepared to stand up for, then your, your position is that that's the, uh, the most important thing for you. And, and as such, it's not so, so much of a problem to collaborate with. Them. No, no, no. It's um, and that's it's not that it's not so much of a problem. It is a necessary and active virtue to collaborate with those who will preserve your capacity for the civilizing power of free thought and free speech. And I sort of put it something like this. This is an analogy, and it's not perfect, but hopefully it will clarify something, some things. Have you ever lived in a crime-free neighborhood? No. It's a remarkable thing to live in a crime-free neighborhood. You know, you, you, you've heard the legends, you've heard tell of the stories of the fabled land where people don't lock their doors at night. In fact, they may leave them open because it provides a breeze, where people don't lock their cars, where children can roam the neighborhoods at will without fear, where children do not need to pass through metal detectors in order to go to school, where you can walk the streets day and night, carry as much cash as you want, and the people around you will generally only nod and smile. You've heard these kinds of stories, right? Yeah. And in general, 
these are white neighborhoods and East Asian neighborhoods to some degree as well. And if you and I lived in that neighborhood, we'd grown up in that neighborhood, and there was virtually no crime, then if somebody said, man, I really got to put bars on the window because I'm terrified of home invasions, what would you say? Well, I would say that's a terrible shame. Well, we'd say that's really a bit of a waste of resources, wouldn't you say? Um, well, if you're absolutely certain that there's going to be no crime, then it would be. Well, let's just say there's never been a home invasion in the neighborhood. And there's no, uh, there are no welfare migrants from Syria being allocated. No, to no, no. It's a, it's, a, it's a non-crime neighborhood. That's yeah, what I said. Yeah. I know it's hard to picture <laughs> but this is how the majority of people lived in the past, before multiculturalism. The majority of people in white towns, in white neighborhoods, lived free of the fear of crime. And it's, it's almost impossible to, to picture that, right? It's fading like the old man in the bar story in 1984 of life before the revolution. It's fading from memory. But that's how it used to be. When Detroit was majority white, almost no crime. Now, different story. So if somebody in a crime-free neighborhood says, I want to put bars on my window, you'd say, that's not empirical. That's not a, sen a sensible reaction to a real issue. That's more paranoia than self-defense. you understand? Yes. Now, let's say you live in a high-crime neighborhood. Very high-crime neighborhood. You know, there's a terrifying scene in an old Lawrence Castan movie called Grand Canyon where a black woman who lives in what looks like a war zone house, there's bars on the windows, there's bullet holes on the walls around, and it's terrifying. And a man comes knocking on her door and she unlocks the nine locks and pulls back the Death Star blast doors and all that and talks to him and he says he wants to sell her life insurance. She's got a bunch of kids around. And they go back and forth and back and forth because she doesn't really think she needs life insurance. And he finally says, oh, no, 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 it's not for you. It's for your children. The life insurance is for your children. pays triple in the event of violent death. Now, if you lived in that kind of neighborhood, Ben, you bought a house there, or well, you ended up there, there were no bars on the window, and you said, I want to put bars on the window, would that be sensible? And there's absolutely no crime and no risk of crime. No, no, in this neighborhood, this is the high crime neighborhood. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't live there if you couldn't have bars. Yeah. Right. Well, if you had the option not to live there. Yes, you'd put bars on the window. You'd put bars on the window, right? In fact, the people who didn't put bars on the window would just be inviting trouble, right? Exactly. Now, my whole 
goddamn life. I was lied to. I was lied to about ethnicity. I was lied to about multiculturalism. I was lied to about feminism. I was lied to about crime statistics. I was lied to about my history. I was lied to about my culture. I was lied to about my gender. I lived in a drip poison matrix of horrible leftist verbal abuse directed solely at my balls and your balls. I was told, bars on the window? You gotta be kidding. White people are the only dangerous people. Bars on the window? You gotta be kidding. There's no significant crime. White flight? That's just racism. But now I have the facts. And I've had the experts on to talk about the facts. And you can look at my interviews with Kevin Beaver. And a lot of the other people who've talked about these issues. We've got other ones coming up. So now, I have the facts. So if you're told, ah, you live in a low-crime neighborhood, what the hell do you need bars on the window? You're crazy. You're imagining things. You're racist. Ah, but now, you see, we have some facts. So now, I say to the people who want to put bars on the window... Oh, I'm listening. Yeah, I think, um, as well as the facts, um, you can look at some, some cultural differences. So, you know, there are lots of different ways you can analyze it, but, um, you know, if you, if you sort of take it to take a tour or through Western literature or, or cultural drama, you find a lot of different values, including some of those universal values which you mentioned earlier. Um, with great respect to, you know, many people who want to make the best life possible, who come from you know, Arab countries. Within those countries, there simply isn't the same, as far as I'm aware, and I could be wrong, there just simply isn't the same kind of tradition. So, I mean, for, for example, I think, you know, one of the, one of the most famous uh, famous publications that comes from Arabia is the Arabian Nights. And if you look through all of those stories, you'll find that it's really, it's all about deceit and cunning, um, and, the, and the prizes are wealth and, and power. And, or the males get the woman, or the, the woman increases her power over others. But you don't find any universals. And I'm of the view that a lot of people coming in think that we are absolute fools and that they, they can have contempt for us because we give them things for free. Whereas in their society, it's, perhaps I'm wrong, but things are mostly focused on power. Um, people who get respect for those who have power and those who are strong. So not only do they have contempt for us um, for, for getting those things for free, but they're, you know, they can't conceive of reciprocating any universal values because it doesn't even occur to them. It's, it's not part of their culture. And I apologize to anyone, you know, if I'm wrong, who, you know, who's listening, who, who may think that there's evidence to the contrary. But I think that, I don't know, crime rates and that sort of thing demonstrate that 
this is the case. And therefore, yeah, we need, we need some heavy bars. We need them nailed down. And um, anyone who's up for putting those bars in place is, is an ally. Culture is a breeding pen. And this, you know, the degree to which genetics shapes particular cultures and ethnicities should not be ever underestimated. Because we have a tendency to view, because of the way we're raised, and the cultural relativism and Marxism and economic determinism and, and all of that, that we're all just water imported into different containers, doesn't matter. We have no identity. We are all 100% environmental. We should never underestimate the degree to which genetics has shaped and is shaped by culture. Because we have a tendency to always underestimate it, so we almost can't overestimate it too much to counter that tendency. But if you have a culture that has lasted for, I guess, nearly a millennia and a half with no respect in particular given to free speech and debate and rhetoric and logic, reason, evidence, philosophy... If you've lived in a all-powerful theocracy, well, we know to a fair degree of certainty that Jews increased their intelligence in 700 years by having the most intelligent people have the most children, increased their intelligence by 15 IQ points. It's staggering. That's just 700 years. What has 1,400 years of living under a theocracy done? to the genes that favor philosophy. I know that that sounds weird. And it, it may not be true. But I think it's something really to be considered. This is why I talk about bio-incompatibility. How would people like you and I fare in a theocracy? Badly. Any woman who would breed with us would be crazy. Because we'd be depressed. We'd be maybe suicidal. We'd feel fake the whole time, cheering along out of terror of repercussions. Reason, in a state of superstition, is selected out of the gene pool very quickly. And genes of aggression and compliance are selected into that gene pool very rapidly. And that is a very important consideration to think of. When you don't have reason and evidence, the only way you can resolve social disputes is through deceit and aggression. Because it can't be win-win, because win-win requires reason and evidence. So you point out, you know, in the the deceit, the manipulation, the aggression that goes on in certain of these stories, well, yeah, I mean, that's the natural result. And what that means is, since reason and evidence can't resolve disputes, reason and evidence get selected out of the gene pool, and since aggression and deceit do resolve disputes, because it's, like again, like two carpets pushing together, one goes on the top, one goes on the bottom, it's no win-win. Well, genes for aggression and deceit spread and escalate within the gene pool. And this is what I mean, like, we, we, we don't have the data. It makes sense, evolutionarily speaking. Anybody who accepts evolution can't deny that an aggressive culture 
a violent culture, a culture that punishes, violently punishes dissent, is going to breed for compliance and aggression or submission. It's going to have that duality, right? Whereas a culture that rewards reason, evidence, a commitment to debate over aggression, well, that culture is going to reward thinkers rather than aggressive, manipulative personality structures. And this is the clash at a biological level, in my opinion. And there are, of course, mixtures on both sides, but we're looking at the preponderance. It is curious because um, it appears to me that there do seem to be some aspects of people of European ancestry which manifest in in the culture, um, which, although present in individuals from other people from other parts of the world, um, don't seem to be prevalent. And I mean, some, one example of that which you've brought up is obviously the value of reason and evidence. You know, Western philosophy was somewhat nurtured in, in the Islamic world for a while, but hasn't developed to the same extent that, as it has even nearly anywhere else. Um, and there are other aspects like, um, for example, char- charity, um, charity fundraising, comic relief, live aid, all of these things are very Western. You don't see these things cropping up in other parts of the world, in Asia or... Well, you do, but only for the in-group. Only for the... Exactly, yeah. There's no generosity towards people from, from, from other groups. In fact, they think it's foolish. And the same... Perhaps I'm wrong again, but the same thing can be said for the environment. So if you see all the tree huggers and the environmentalists and people cleaning up oil spills and cutting, cutting whales out of nets and that sort of thing, they're almost exclusively all white. And I don't know what it is about Europeans. Perhaps, what? why do they care? I mean, I think it's fair to say that people from other cultures really don't care and they find it foolish. Um, well, you, Europe has a truly multicultural history. It's just that multicultural means non-white. That, that's all it means. And generally it means anti-white. Because Europe is a very multicultural place. Different ethnicities, different languages, different cultures, different religions, different histories. Compare that to Saudi Arabia. Is that a very multicultural place? No, Europe is a multicultural melting pot. And a lot of the countries in the Middle East, they do have their Sunnis and their Wahhabis, and they do have, but fundamentally, it's far less diverse than Europe. So you're inviting a non-diverse culture, an anti-diversity culture, into a diverse culture. And, and look at um, the, the, the dozens of countries that have fallen under Muslim rule. Well, the first of them being Arabia as a whole, the Middle East as a whole. You know, Arabic culture prior to the rise of Islam was very religiously tolerant. There were over 300 religions being practiced in the region. Over 300 religions being practiced in the region. That's the kind of tension and friction that allows for the development of some sort of free speech. And of course, it is one of the alternative histories that if that had been allowed to continue, right, that debate, that option, that lack of theological monomania in a society, what might have happened in the Arabic world? Well, in a state where 
there's some free speech allowed, those best at reason and evidence tend to flourish and grow and their ideas tend to spread. But those states where subjugation to theocracy is the virtue, well, the compliant and the aggressive tend to flourish genetically and from a resource standpoint as well. So you have an intolerant anti-diversity culture coming crashing into a tolerant and diverse culture. But the debate is entirely driven by women's desire to avoid conflict as a whole. I mean, there are men too, but of course a lot of these men have been raised by single moms and don't have masculine influences in their lives and have been taught to hate their own history and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I don't know. I mean, you're a guy who talks about difficult things. Maybe I've just had a different experience of this and I certainly know exceptions to, to this rule. It's not a hundred percent, obviously, but what has your experience been when trying to bring up these issues with men or women? <laughs> um, well, one example, I did try and bring it up with women a week ago and I was shouted at and had the phone hung up. <laughs> so I'm basically shut up. It's shut up quite often. Um, right. A lot of people don't want to hear, you know, a lot of people just want their, um, you know, they want their next five minutes of peace and watch their silly TV programs, or, you know, and they don't want to hear the bad news, um, which means that... <laughs> inevitably bad news is coming because they're not prepared to even even face it. So, um, yeah, you're saying that I think, it, you know, more and more people are, are starting to face reality because it's forced upon us. Um, you know, you can't avoid the fact, living in most parts of England, that communities are entirely fragmented. You, you know, you've got streets where people are speaking 10, 15 different languages. Um, it's impossible for, for people to, you know, to, to come together in that sense. Um, so, you know, more and more, I mean, the evidence is so obvious that people will ha either have to, you know, come to reality or, or change their opinions. Um, and things can, you know, I was just thinking today how quickly things could could go wrong and, and perhaps that would stimulate some sort of change for the better. But... Um, I mean, an example in the UK is in the Troubles in Ireland. Um, in, in Northern Ireland, you had the Catholic and the Protestant communities who, for years, um, had great animosity, and there were many incidences of violence. So, you know, in one night, for example, I think 20 or 30 paramilitaries basically caused a, a disturbance that meant that People had, you know, people from the Catholic side of the city or the Protestant side had to move move house overnight. Houses were burnt down, you know, over a thousand petrol bombs thrown, all sorts of things. You know, things can kick off really quickly. And um, we've got a situation in Europe, much of Europe now, particularly in England, where, you know, you've got cultures who are vastly dissimilar to the Irish and the, the Irish Catholics and the Protestants in Northern Ireland. And um, so, I mean, my experience of trying to speak reason to a lot of people has been hopeless but you know you can't you can't ignore things when they're on their doorstep or at least i hope not um so no no you won't uh, and your goal of course i assume is to gain credibility for when the switch gets flipped right i suppose so. i mean you know why why did churchill why did churchill attain the prime ministership of england at the beginning of the second world war 
because he had been warning of the dangers all along, and then when he was proven right, he was put in charge, right? I believe so. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure on, on my history on that point, but that, that sounds accurate. Uh, there's a great, uh, great line from The Godfather where the guy basically says, oh, they should have stopped Hitler at the beginning, and anybody with half a brain could have seen that thing coming. That's one of the mafia guys, right? Yeah, well, I mean, you've got to... I don't know, I'm starting to question everything about history these days, and, I mean, Churchill declared war on Hitler, not the other way around. Yeah, so that is, look, that is that is certainly true, and the the, the history of Churchill is is complex and multi layered, but there is no doubt, and Hitler himself admitted this, that if the Allies had stood up to him when he took Alsace Lorraine or when he occupied the Rhineland, if they had stood up to him, he would have lost. And this is what Churchill was urging them to do. So if Churchill had had his way, there wouldn't have been a Second World War. The fact that they didn't listen to Churchill and then there was a Second World War, well. The appeasers are the R's and the K's are the warriors. So the more the appeasers drag you into a deadly and dangerous situation, the more they can kill off the R's. And again, that, this is from the Gene Wars presentation, so I won't get into it in too much detail here. But I hope that um, people will listen. And what I would do, and again, this is certainly not to say all Muslims, but of course there are those out there who have openly talked about their desire to take over Europe. And the way to do it is relatively simple. You, There are countries in Europe that are spending less than 2%. 2% is the NATO minimum, but there are a lot of countries spending less than 2%. There's one country spending less than 2% of its budget on the military, but almost 10% of its budget on the migrants. <laughs> it's, it's a wild, wild situation, to put it mildly. And my question to everyone who thinks I'm crazy, and God, I hope I am. <laughs> I hope I am just off the deep end as far as this goes. I don't think I am, but I hope I am. My question to all of the people who think this is going to be fine is, well, what happens when the governments run out of money? Right? Because you have these large communities that are insular that are being heavily propagandized by a lot of the expert clerics sent in from Saudi Arabia. What happens when the European governments run out of money? Because they will, mathematically, especially because they don't even have the option of devaluing, as Greece found out, to its agony over the past, what, a five to ten years or so. What is going to happen when the welfare checks dry up. What is going to happen within these no-go zones? What is going to happen within these communities? Right, A lot of them don't have jobs. A lot of them haven't economically integrated. They've got kids' mouths to feed. What is going to happen when the money runs out? I mean, I, I don't know a great deal about economics, but it appears to me possible that they would just implement the full communism they, you know, they start running out of money and then just increase taxes until you've basically got near 100% taxation. But that won't work. I mean, that's not, I mean, the, the taxes in some of the Scandinavian countries are north of 60 or 70%. I mean, that's, that's just, there's no money, no money to take. And I, I 
have this, you know, I go back and forth over this big plan kind of thing. You know, every time I post one of these just comments, oh, it's a big clovered pipe or whatever plan and it's been in place for decades. I don't know. I think that most politicians are simply reacting to the convenience of the moment and the convenience of the moment is to ignore the problem. But I will tell you this, Ben, that historically, when governments start to run out of money, there's a war. Because people will not generally accept privation in the absence of danger. So if you say to people, well, sorry, we can't pay X, Y, and Z of our government obligations because there's no money, people will not accept that. But if we say, well, we're going to have to put you on rations, we're going to cut your pensions because there's a war, well, people will accept that. So when the governments run out of money, they provoke a war because the people won't accept privation in the absence of danger. It's tragic, but it's true. And by people, well, <laughs> I'll let you all puzzle out what gender I may be referring to a little more than the other, but the European governments know they're running out of money. I mean, that's, that's pretty clear. And they're running out of taxpayers because the birth rates throughout Europe are so low for the most part. They're running out of taxpayers and they're running out of money. You've got less money coming in and you've got more money going out. Lots of people retiring. They need their pensions. They need their health care. They need all of those benefits. And there are not enough taxpayers Coming in. Now, so the cover story is, oh, it's okay, we'll import all these illiterate third world immigrants, and won't you know, they'll just be filling up the tax coffers, and they'll be absolutely thrilled to have 50% of their money taken to being given to some elderly Swedish couple. And that's the cover story, but I don't think that's the real story. I think the real story is that there will be significant conflict, and in that significant conflict, the government will be able to renege on its obligations, and to oppose that will be considered unpatriotic. This conflict is a way of being able to renege on impossibly high expectations of the population. It's a way of being able to renege on the government's unfunded liabilities without getting voted out of office. Remember, the politicians are drug addicts. They are addicted to the drug of power, literally, physically dependent on the drug of power. And they will do whatever they can to maintain that power. And all of the supposed love they have for the people will evaporate very quickly, as it does in times of war. And so provoking a conflict, going to war, generally occurs when the governments have run out of solutions, when they can't bribe, they can't buy, they can't promise and deliver, they can't buy people's votes, therefore they have to sell people's deaths. And that's my guess as to what's coming. Look, it, it, throughout the 1930s, the West was engaged in general in a massive experiment in socialist big government, made all these massive promises. And we've got the great truths about the Great Depression on this very channel, which we can link to and, and talk about. You can review below. But the Western democracies were engaged in massive redistributionist schemes, massive control of the economy, central planning, vote buying 
on an unprecedented scale. And after 13 years, governments were running out of money. Now, what happened? Oh, look, we have a nice war. And that way, people will accept the government not fulfilling its obligations because Nazis. And there is so little appetite. And do I, do I blame the politicians? Yeah, to some degree. Do I blame the population? Yeah, to some degree. But they're heavily propagandized. Now, the Internet's trying to help with that, but they're heavily propagandized. You know, there's an old, is it Megadeth has an album? Peace sells, but who's buying? Truth sells, but who's buying? Who's buying? I'm, I have this fantasy of uh, if I were running for office, what my speech would be to introduce myself to the world. I may do that at some point over the summer, but how many people want to hear the truth? What is the market for truth in politics? Well, there's no market, <laughs> as far as I'm aware. There's punishment. There's punishment. Not only is there no market, but you'll be punished, right? Well, I mean, I think there probably are some politicians, you know, less mainstream parties who are at least prepared to tell the partial truth. Um, so, but I, I agree by and large. Um, yeah, the truth is very unpopular and, and will lose them power. So it's contrary to their interests. All right. Well, so I, I hope this has given you some, I mean, obviously I don't want to tell you what to think. That would be the exact opposite of what I'm trying to do. But sort of my evolution and my perspectives in this area, you know, I was also lied. So I was lied about the degree of public consumption of goods by illegal immigrants in particular. And I was also deceived about the degree to which they can influence the political process. Because, oh, they're living in the shadows. They have no voice. They have right. Well, the fact is that a lot of them can vote. The fact is a lot of them can get welfare. The fact is that I was just lied to. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> when you're lied to, you know. Uh, if you're told the town is south when it's actually north and you drive south, does that mean you're wrong? You just lie to. So you get better information and you turn around. Sorry? Um, I'm listening. Well, no, so that's, you know, w with more facts, you know, I, I, my sole goal is for the, the conversation called philosophy to continue in the world. And I look at the places where the philosophy is not continuing in the world or has been stagnant or has regressed. And, of course, I was in the libertarian community where there's a lot of propaganda about immigrants. So where the conversation is continuing is in the West. It's being threatened, but throughout the rest of the world, where is the conversation continuing? Where can basic philosophical arguments be raised in public? So... I have the facts. I wish the conversation to continue when you have a long-term plan and there's something in the way, you have to deal with what's in the way. And whoever has a good solution to allow the conversation to continue has my undivided attention. You know, we talked to Vox Day. He's a nationalist. Convivial conversations with him. So, all right. I'm going to move on to the next caller, Ben, but I hope this was helpful and thank you so much for bringing up these questions. It's very helpful. Thank you for your time and for what you do. You're very welcome. All the best. All right. Can you mute Ben? All right. Well, up next is Maria. 
Maria wrote into the show and said, I am a 50-year-old woman who has been in a long-term relationship with a married man for almost 19 years now. We have a 17-year-old son together. My boyfriend is a very good and religious man. We have a good relationship, except for the fact that he refuses to get divorced, even though he is no longer living with his wife and children. My question is obvious. Should I continue in a relationship that doesn't make me completely happy? Also, why do I feel the need to stay, even though I am clearly not happy in this situation? Why can't I let it go so that I can hopefully find someone who will want to build a life with me? That's from Maria. Well, thanks, Maria. I appreciate you calling in. And can I just say it's refreshing to have a romantic question that can't be resolved through the purchase of a water buffalo. Thank you so much for for calling in. (laughs) Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you just fine. Okay. So, yeah, actually, I did listen to that uh, that particular podcast, actually. I found that interesting. Right. Okay. Can you give me a... Give me a little bit of the old backstory here. Uh, that would be helpful because, uh, you know, b- bit of a surprising mm-hmm. uh, situation. Okay. Also, I wanted to let you know that I actually managed to end that relationship. I actually. Oh, since you wrote in? Yeah, actually. I actually, along with the combination of listening to your podcast and actually sorting everything out in my head, I was able to end it. Wow. So, which, do, do you mind if I still ask a few questions? Because yeah. it, may be, it may be educational to okay. others who are considering the same path. Okay. So do you still want So to... you met him when you were, what, 31 or so? 32. 32. All right. Mm-hmm. And I guess two years into the affair, you had uh, a kid? No, actually, it was within the same year that we met. So we met in September of 97. And then um, around 98. I had my son around June. Of okay, okay. And um, of course, did you know? What well, I shouldn't say, of course. Um, did you know that he was married? No, I didn't until after I was pregnant. And then once I found out, I told him, "If you want to see your son, or actually, I didn't know if it was a boy then, but if you want to see your child, you're welcome to see him. But I don't think we should continue because you're a married man." Were there any clues that uh, there were some he was clues? Married? Yes, there were some what were clues. They? Um, let's see. He had a beeper at that time. People had beepers, so he gave me his beeper number, not his home number, to call him. So I would beep him. So the beeper is where you call and it says someone called and then they call you back, right? Doctors used to wear it before. I guess they had enough yes. cell phones, whatever, right? Okay, exactly. So that's what I would do. I would beep him, hey, call me, I want to talk to you. Was his availability somewhat less than you would expect from somebody who was not married? Uh, no, actually, he was very available. And But that was because he had, uh, at that point, he was pretty much out of the marriage because he was actually having, like, uh, little relationships with other women within the marriage. But he was, like, he was the last, like, a year relationships would last at least a year and then they would break up once a woman wanted to you know what's going on is there a future for us and then so he yeah. what was he in an open marriage no it wasn't an open marriage i'm not really sh- no because the wife never she even now she has not never gone out with any other men but but was did did he have her permission to go out with other women 
No, no. But she knew and she accepted it and that was fine. Well, no, no, no. Hang on. Mm-hmm. If, she, if, if she accepted it, that's that's giving him permission. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yes. Yes. I guess so she didn't right. accept it. She obviously it, it hurt her and, and that's not what she wanted. Right. 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 OK. Yeah. Just just checking. And um, mm-hmm. so was it for 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 19 years he's remained or he had remained neither really married nor divorced to this woman? Yes. It's a pretty good way of not committing to someone new, wouldn't you say? Like yeah. if you want to just sleep with a bunch of women but never commit, then you just stay married and say, well, you know, I'm still married and blame it on religion or whatever, right? It's a pretty good way to continue yes. to play the field exactly. without ever having to commit. Okay. Exactly, yes. And that, and he, his thinking was, okay, well, I told you I'm married. I told you I'm not going to leave my wife. So it's on you. So he would be not responsible for that. And how rich was this guy? He has virtually no money. Sometimes I, I used to lend him money. There's no money? He okay, is really... how pretty is this guy? Okay. <laughs> there we go. Okay, okay I had to find one is... of the two. Okay. No, but there's an interesting thing about that. Too. No, no, no. Answer, answer, Maria. He how looked, pretty was he? He looked like Tom Selleck when I met him. Ah, oh, super, super hunk. Yeah. Really... Right, Thundercock Hunkasaurus, right? Okay, got it. <laughs> but, but... Well, when I met him, I I was not looking at how attractive he was. That was oh, not. Oh come on! Oh come on! Come on! I, you're not talking. To, no. You're not talking to that guy. You're talking to this guy. No, honestly. You saying you didn't notice how good looking he was? Honestly, I didn't. I have to say, I'm. I just remember thinking, "Wow, he treats me nice. He worries about me. He's like concerned. Do you need to? Do you want something to eat? Are you hungry? Are you thirsty?" He would open the door for me. He was just very nice to me and I've never had that before so that was unusual and it wasn't until later that I realized wow this guy is really attractive <laughs> yeah I don't I'm sorry I, I don't believe you for a second <laughs> okay. uh, come on I mean biologically speaking the idea that we don't notice if someone is attractive you know I bet you if you were hooked up to some sensor that that registered mm-hmm. your blood flow or you know whatever <laughs> it would be that would indicate uh, sexual harassment um Come on. I mean, okay. the, the, fact, right. the women like to have a good-looking guy on their arm. It's called arm candy, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it's for a reason. It's, it makes you high status uh, if you're out with a very attractive man. Yes, yes, and I would notice that, too, that when we would go to restaurants, uh, women would ignore me, and they would talk only to him. And women Oh, yeah, no, I went stare. out with a woman so good-looking that uh, everyone thought I was her bodyguard. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the idea that I hadn't noticed it, I mean, come on, come on. I mean, Maria, okay, we gotta, maybe. We gotta, I like gotta to give that. the honesty. Yeah, you, no. don't, you don't stay with a broke guy for 19 years because he opens doors for you. you know, lots of guys will open doors for you, mm-hmm. whatever, right? So, okay. Yeah, I guess I get the rights. <laughs> okay. And, and, of course, I, I know that when people lower their standards – it's because they're getting some other compensation, right? We all know this. Yeah. I mean, this is for men and for women, right? When men say, she treats me badly, it's because there's some other compensation. Maybe she's the only woman who will sleep with you. Maybe she's really, really good looking. Maybe whatever, right? Who knows, right? But when you're treated badly, there's some compensation somewhere else in the equation. It balances out. And we have to find that because that's your weakness, right? Mm-hmm. If you're willing to be treated badly in a relationship, yeah. then... It's because you have a weakness for some other benefit that's usually based on vanity or greed. Uh-huh. All right. 
I mean, seriously, if this guy was 500 pounds. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't have even Would he be able to just string along a bunch of women? No. No. And what bugs me about this too, Maria, is Mm -hmm. that because he's got, how many many girlfriends do you think he had over these 19 years? Or how many women do you think he dated or slept with? Um, Honestly, I'd like to believe uh, only me in the 19 years. uh, Okay, but if you were to look at it realistically rather than what you'd like to believe? Mm Mm-hmm. But you don't. So you don't know, right? I suspected one or two, and uh, actually one, one. I think one in the nineteen years that we were together. So you're rewarding this guy because he looks good, and you're not rewarding some guy with your companionship or being the wife of a guy who didn't look as good, but would would have been a better person, right? Wouldn't be in this situation where he's lying to his wife or betraying his wife. I mean, you say he's a good and religious man, but he broke his marriage vows. He lied to his wife. He hurt his wife. And I, I assume he didn't live with you, right? Yes, we never lived together, honestly. Briefly, we did. But the, even so, then, there were issues. So if you never lived with him, then he did not do the right thing by his son. Yes. Right? Because if you, if you have a son with a woman, mm-hmm. then you should because you care about the son and it's your responsibility, you should do your best to marry the mom, to to live as a father, to be a father to your son, mm-hmm. right? He didn't do that. No, he did not. So there's some guy out there who would have been a great husband and great father, but you didn't go out with him because this guy looked like Tom Selleck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is annoying to a lot of men. I'm just going to tell you, you're <laughs> going to see this in the comments below. Because a lot of men are very frustrated at the degree to which, I mean, I know women are frustrated at the degree to which guys go after the hotties, but the degree to which women will will go after high-status men and not the more stable providers and and good husband, because they don't look like Tom Selleck, which is no guy's fault in particular, just the way it is, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of frustrating because there's some guy out there who doesn't have kids because you had a kid with this guy, right? Yes. And how's your son doing? He um he doesn't really care about his father. He doesn't care to have a relationship with him. And what do you think about that? I think it's sad because I had a father who was pretty much a ghost in my household, in the house. He was there, but he wasn't there. So I, I had always hoped to have a good father for my children, and it was not the case. Oh, Maria, seriously. Well, first of all, I'm sorry about your father. But you you can't possibly tell me that you'd always hoped to have a good father for your son and then got pregnant by a guy who obviously wasn't going to commit, right? Right, right. I mean, how did you you get pregnant with this guy? Were you trying? No, actually, we used a condom and it, oh, that's a whole other story too. Unfortunately, um, the condom that he had was old. And he didn't realize there was an expiration date on the condom. <laughs> and so we used an and, old, uh, and okay, so the con Okay, yeah, so the condom broke. Right. And you didn't want to take a morning after pill? I didn't realize that I was pregnant. I didn't realize until... Oh, come was, on. The condom broke? You didn't realize you might be at a risk of pregnancy? No, I didn't realize that the condom broke. That's the thing. Did I, he not tell you? Uh, I don't even think he knew either. I... I don't oh, come on, Maria. Maria, look, if we're going to have a conversation, uh-huh. you, you can't you can't be pulling this stuff on me. 
I, I can't just like you understand. I'm a smart guy. Mm-hmm. Maybe you've been around guys who were like, "Well, that sounds legit to me," but that's not me. Come on, guy pulls out of a woman. Mm-hmm. He knows whether the condom is on the tip or not. Okay. He knows when you pull the condom off to throw uh-huh. it out. You know whether or not you can see daylight through it. Okay, so that was my mistake because I, I took whatever he told me. I just accept it, and. So he told you that the condom hadn't broken when he knew for a fact. No, no, that no. That didn't come up until later on when I found out I was pregnant in October. I was like two so months. So he pregnant. knew that the condom broke. Mm-hmm. He knew that you might be pregnant, but didn't tell me. But didn't tell you. Mm-hmm. And it was. But you told me he is a very good and religious man. Yes, and I... You also notice whether you have ejaculate within you? I mean, you go to the washroom, I assume, and spritz up after sex. Do you not notice that you're sneezing some teeth, toothpaste out of your nether regions? No. <laughs> no. Really? Because a man ejaculates, you know, what, a uh-huh. quarter of a cup of, uh, of cum, and you don't notice that that's in you? No idea. No, all that... No, honestly, no. It was something that happened... Um pretty quickly and it was um honestly no i didn't use a bathroom afterwards um did he act did he have angel wings no. uh, did he float did he have a halo was this some sort of immaculate cumless conception no because you understand from the outside this story is not believable if the condom broke then he ejaculated in uh-huh. you if he ejaculated in you you'd notice that because you'd be dripping when you went to clean up you understand that this does not believable. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I understand I'm just that. Yeah, no, I understand that. But, um, Steph, you have to, well, there's a whole history with me. Um, I was actually a virgin until I was 30. So I'd, at that point, I'd only been having sex probably two years when I met him. I had a very sheltered life. My parents, which was has what, and I, you know, I understand that, but which has what bearing on the physics of what I'm talking about? Um, at that point, I, I was very naive, even though I was 30. I mean, 32. So there was a lot of stuff, you know, I had been sleeping with a few men, but I didn't, there was a lot of stuff I didn't know, honestly. Okay. What, what didn't you know that would have a bearing on this situation? Hmm. <sighs> Well, I mean, I I did know how not to get pregnant, but there was a few details that I I didn't know. You know, if I if there's uh, ejaculate coming out of me, I didn't even realize that. I, I'm hang on, hang on. Sorry, I'm just uh-huh. I'm trying to fathom this. Okay, so you've been having sex for a couple of years. Uh-huh. You're thirty, well, thirty plus in this uh-huh. situation. Yes. You're not mentally incapacitated. You're no. not in a coma. No. And, but you didn't know that a man's ejaculate inside of you might have something to do with getting pregnant. No, no. I did know that. You knew that. Okay. Yes. And, but you didn't know that the gray matter that was coming out of your vagina might be ejaculate. Yes. Uh, no, actually, um, it's, it's hard to explain stuff. But I know. I, I know it's hard to explain. And I think <laughs> I know why it's hard to explain because it's not true. Something happened that you decided to get pregnant. And you don't want to say that to me because no. most people don't. No, but from no. the outside, it's very clear. No, no, that was not my intention. No, honestly, 
I had it only you're, been... You're trying, you're honestly trying to tell me that a woman in her 30s who'd been having sex for a couple of years didn't know that she had ejaculate in her. Well, it, from what I remember that night, uh, we were in bed. I had... Um, and we stayed in bed. At no point did I go to the bathroom until towards probably the when we were getting ready to leave the hotel room. So maybe I did see something, but I didn't think anything of it. But but honestly, that was not my intention. And even he at some point had said to me that I purposely had done that. And no, that was the last thing I wanted to do. You know, I've only been having sex for two years. Why would I want to get pregnant, especially with somebody I don't even know that well? Well, you know him well enough to have sex with him. Did you not right. notice that uh, sex, if a condom breaks, there's a different sensation, right? Sex without a condom feels different than sex with a condom. Uh, okay. Well, this goes into my past again. Now, um, when I was seven years old, I was uh, sexually abused by three different men. So uh, with sexual abuse, there is, uh, at least in my case, I left my body. I was no longer there during the abuse. So then you separate yourself from your body. So there's certain, uh, it's just... Uh, well, so hang on a sec. So Maria, I've obviously I'm uh-huh. shocked and appalled that this happened to you as a child. But are you saying that that same level of body dissociation that occurred when you were sexually abused as a child also occurred when you had sex with this guy? In other words, your body was reacting as if he was abusing you? No, 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 not with him. Um, at some, um, I think that there was some deficits, like in certain situations. So when a condom, I mean, I think now I could, but at that time, I, I can't tell the difference. I couldn't tell the difference when a condom. When I'm, when I was having sex with a man with a condom or without a condom, there's certain things that I, I don't think I can do or I'm, I'm able to do. So I, so you have, so I just want to, because I mean, we're mm-hmm. kind of stuck in a revolving door here, Maria, but mm-hmm. what I'm basically hearing you say is that you were in no way responsible for getting pregnant and in no way responsible for choosing a guy who lied to you about a condom breaking. Mm. No. <laughs> like you have no agency in the matter. It, no. it just happened to you. Um, I guess you could say that. It's just, I'm just trying to say that I was not, I didn't have the tools at that point, at that age, at 32, you know, to look for things like this that, you know, I've you, had. Do you not think that, hang on, but do you not think that, I mean, if you're sort of saying, well, mm-hmm. I was legally blind, I drove a car. Uh, you know, I crashed into someone, but it's not my fault because I wasn't wasn't good at driving a car and didn't know how to drive a car. But I mean, if you're going to start engaging in sexual activity, mm-hmm. yes, don't you think it's incumbent upon you to know some things about sexual activity, such as how yes. you become pregnant? Yes. So saying, well, you didn't know, to me is not, you know, if if you if you if you grab the the you know if you grab the joystick of an airplane and you don't know how to fly, and you crash, I don't think you can say, well, I didn't know how to fly. It's like, well, then you shouldn't have been grabbing the joystick, he said, with using a very subtle analogy. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I, I mean, yes, I think you're right. Yes, I, I wasn't, uh, yeah, I shouldn't have been having sex at that time. I, I didn't have enough experience, yes. Yeah, you're right about that. So, yes, I take responsibility for that. Do you think that a good and religious man... Mm-hmm 
impregnates a woman without her knowledge? Again, I can't believe I'm saying that, but let's just go with the narrative, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Do you think that uh, a, a man uh, has unprotected sex with a woman but pretends that it was protected by not telling her the condom broke? Well, um, no. If they are good and religious... And then does not particularly take responsibility for the child afterwards? Yeah. No, I see what you mean. I see, it. I see what you're saying. Did he pay... Uh, did he pay any money towards the child? Yes, he pays child support. Right. Mm -hmm. When you lived with him, Maria, you said that there were issues? Uh, briefly, we were together maybe like two months. And what were the issues? Uh, the issues were that, um, well, again, this is another excuse uh, that he wouldn't make up or he would, um, he said that... Um, Gee, I wonder why he got his capacity for excuses from. <laughs> you guys might have been perfect for each other that way, but sorry, go ahead. <laughs> okay, so um, he said that I, I didn't enjoy doing housework and being a housewife. I'm sorry, he, he said that you didn't enjoy being a housewife? Yes. I told him, well, I, I clean a house, I will clean it, it's a necessity, it's not my favorite thing to do. But he said, yeah, you don't enjoy doing that. And you seem to be unhappy cleaning a house and cooking on a daily basis. And I just thought that's a stupid reason. Okay. I don't, I don't, I'm sorry. The, the, the issue was that he thought you didn't enjoy cooking house, and cleaning. Yes. Being a housewife. And is that why your son had to grow up without a father? Because this was the level of conflict you had with his father? No, 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 actually. Okay. So what else? What else in the early years when we were together, after we separated and then came back together, um, he said, uh, my father, my mother, I, um, he said that uh, his family, the main thing was his family. My family won't accept divorce. No, I can't divorce because of that reason. Or there was always an excuse. You know, my parents won't accept you. No, but he was, he was living with you, right? Oh, so he said his parents wouldn't accept you because... Because of the because way our relationship started. And unfortunately, his parents heard um, a few things about me which just did not help our relationship. Right. And um, so did he agree with his parents' values? No, he tried to convince them. But I told him, you know what? I know you care about what your parents think and your family think. But um, you know what? You should just leave and tell them this is what's going to happen. You're a grown man. Okay, so your son couldn't grow up with a father because his parents didn't approve of the relationship? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. Do you feel that that's fair to your son? No, not at all. Okay, good. Well, I'm certainly glad that we agree on that. Mm -hmm. Because if you have a child, uh, and a particularly a boy, but, you know, a girl as well, then you have to, as much as you can, provide a male role model for the child. Yes. Right? You know that single mom, the offspring of single mom are fighting a losing battle with numbers as far as outcomes go. Yes. So... If it was just like, well, his parents don't approve, and that's why that my was, son has no father, that's kind of thin, thin gruel to eat, right? Yes, that was one of the many excuses that he used. There were others later no, on. No, 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 that's an excuse you used, because you said that's, okay, well, you care about your parents, so you can go. I mean, you accepted that excuse. You can't call it his excuse if you accept it, right? Yes. That's your excuse, too. Right, right, that's true. 
And he's, this man is still married to his wife, right? Yes. It's a pretty great way to not commit as well, too. Well, I'd love to commit, but my parents don't approve, so I can't get, I mean, wow. Yeah, but it's This guy was very aware of his Tom Selleckness, let's put it that way. Yes. <laughs> well, yes, but then his parents passed away a few years ago. And? And I thought, okay, that means things are going to change. Nothing happened. Of course not, Maria, of course not. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. The point of excuses is to avoid behavior. If one excuse falls down, you grab another one. Exactly, which is what you You know, like if, if, you're, if you're in a, a ship that sank and there are a couple of barrels floating around and you need to hold on to them so you don't drown, if one barrel goes down, you don't drown, you just grab another one. And that's what excuses are. You mm -hmm. don't want to drown. Whatever barrel hand is going to help you with that is the one you're going to grab. Right, right. I realize that now. All right. Mm -hmm. So there's no need to talk about your need to stay in this particular situation. Uh, no, that's why. Because you're gone, right? I, I am done, actually, because uh, it's been a few years that it's back and forth, back and forth. And uh, it's like we break up, we get back together, we pick up, back together. And yeah, he's there for the makeup sex, and then he doesn't commit, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. You give him sex and you don't require commitment. So he'll take the sex and we'll avoid the commitment. Yes. Which is what he did for 19 years. So 20 ain't going to change, right? Right. Nothing's going to okay. change. No. But after listening to some of your podcasts about relationships and then also thinking about this relationship, I decided, you know what, I'm going to move on. And that's what happened in the last two weeks. That's what's All been right. happening. So I'm pretty much done with that. But also okay. to Well, we don't know because how many times have you broken up and made up before? No, I'm done because um, um, at some point I realized, you know what? Um, I feel like we're in a cave and I'm holding the light and I want to help you light your way so that you can get out of this cave. But he's not following me. He's staying behind. Because we did try to go to couples therapy, and he decided, okay, I'll go for you, but not for me. So he refuses to change or to do anything for us as a couple. So I am going to leave the cave, and I'll leave the light for him. And if at some point he wants to follow, he can follow, but I'm not going to wait anymore. And is your question then, how can you find someone who's going to want to build a life with you? No, at this point, no, because um, I think I'm pretty much done with that. Uh, if somebody should come along, that's fine. I'd, I'm not afraid of being alone. I know my family members say, you know, in my, my culture, it's like you have to be attached to a man to be happy. And I don't believe that. And what's your culture? I, I'm in the Mexican culture. It's not if... If whether or not you're going to get married, but when are you going to get married? And unfortunately, and was your um, mm -hmm. was your I don't know. It's hard to say to a 50 year old woman the word boyfriend, but was your boyfriend also uh, of the Mexican persuasion? Yes, he was actually. Right. So right. It, it, and he is much deeper in that culture because uh, that culture. Well, is not really. really. 
No, no, not really, because, uh, you know, if he's, is he Catholic? He's Catholic, but also he lived for 18 years, 19 years in Mexico, and then he came over at 19 years old. No, I, I get it, but I mean, mm -hmm. if he's really into the Catholic culture, uh, he ain't practicing what is preached. Oh, yeah, put no. it mildly, right? Yes, and I reminded him of that all the time. I told him, you know, you made a promise, you know, you got married by the church, and Oh, there's another excuse right there. <laughs> I was just thinking that also he said, I can't, um, I have to ask the Pope for forgiveness so that I can marry you. And there's another excuse right there, you know, because he's still really considered married, even though he gets divorced. He's still considered married under the Catholic religion. No, no, I understand. Mm -hmm. You have to get it annulled, right? Um, and was he in the country legally? He was, uh, not uh, in the beginning, but he is now, and he's actually American citizen now. So mm -hmm. you gave him an anchor baby. An anchor baby? Yeah. No. Uh, by the time he became a legal resident, he had already been married and had, I think, probably like three kids at that point. No, no, I'm talking about you. So 20 years ago, or whatever, 17 years ago, uh -huh. or 18 years ago. Uh huh. Was he legal? Yes, he was. Oh, he was? Yes, okay. yes. All right. All right. I mean, even me, I wasn't born in this country. I came over when I was seven. Right. Right. And you've, I've assumed that mm -hmm. you've worked through this uh, process and so on? I've worked through this what? I mean, you've had a job through this process, right? You're not that sort of stereotypical single mom from another culture that's uh, on welfare and stuff like that? No, no. I've always had a job. I've always worked. I've always believed in working. My mother um, instilled that in me because, um, well, my father was an alcoholic and pretty much didn't work. And my mother was the one in the family who supported us. And she made it possible for herself to buy a home. And uh, she, so my mother has always been a strong woman. And she has been an example. And who took, uh, sorry mm -hmm. to interrupt, but who took care of your son while you were working? Um, my mother. She took care of him for two years. And then I got help through uh, a program with the state so that he could be in preschool from two to five years old until he went All to right, school. All right, so that's tax money, but I guess you have a job. So mm -hmm. your mother was in charge of your safety when you were raped by three men at the age of seven, right? Uh, I... Yes. Uh, That's sort of a rhetorical question because the answer is she was. She was, but she was busy supporting the family. At that point, she had four oh, other no, kids. Oh, no, 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 uh -huh. no, no. Come on. You, you cannot ascribe your mother's failure to protect you. But my father was there, With too. the fact that she had a job. Because that would be to say that somehow all women who have jobs end up with children who are gang raped. Right? Mm -hmm. So she was responsible for keeping you safe. Was this when you were seven? Were you still in Mexico? Yes, we were there. But my father was also there. And I always right. think it was his responsibility. Because okay. I always but your mother chose your father. Yes. Right? Oh, I don't, you know what? I don't like where you're going with this. <laughs> I know you don't like where you're going. <gasps> oh, my God. What I'm God. talking about is, is agency, right? Agency. Uh, look, this is, this is to women as a whole. And Maria, I, I, I'm... I'm sorry that you've not had conversations like this in your life because it probably would have done you a lot of good earlier. But mm -hmm. um, you, you, would you say that women should be equal to men? 
uh, as far as what? Um, well, just do you think that women are the equals to men? Do you think that women should have the same rights and responsibilities that men do? Uh, or do you think that say, women should have reduced rights and reduced responsibilities? No, they should be equal to men. Okay, so women should be equal to men. Now, right. do you think that um, women in general say yes or no to a lot of men who ask to date them? Uh, they say yes. Well, they, they say, say yes or no, right? So a woman yes who's... No reasonably attractive and you know generally most women are attractive particularly when they're younger mm -hmm. yes so a woman has a lot of men who ask her out and she says yes or no so in other words women are in a high sexual market value when they're young and they can choose from a number of different men in general yes that's correct okay so your mother mm -hmm. uh, i can tell you that you are an attractive woman and I know that because you have a susceptibility to vanity. You have a susceptibility to guys who look like Tom Selleck. And also a guy mm -hmm. who looks like Tom Selleck wants to date you, which means that you're an attractive woman. So you are an I attractive to, woman. I, which I, would disagree. Assume, I have to disagree with that, Steph. You don't think you're an attractive woman? Mm, no. no. Did your boyfriend think you were an attractive woman? Or was he like looking away or making you wear a mask or what? Sometimes when we would make love, he would close his eyes. Oh, uh, I, I that, mean, that can happen, right? I mean, right, that can right, happen. right. But also, um, I have two other sisters who are more attractive. And when we were growing up, I could see how men would look at them. So that's why I have to disagree with you on that. Because okay, so your your two sisters are attractive. Okay. I'm sorry if you feel like the apple fell a little far from the tree, but that may not be the case. But, you know, you may look back, you know, there's this old thing where you look back at pictures of yourself when you were younger and you're like, damn, that was prettier than I thought. But um, mm -hmm. so you have two sisters who are attractive, which means most likely that your mother was attractive. And so your mother had the choice of a number of different men mm -hmm. to marry. And your mother chose a man who was emotionally distant and alcoholic. Was he violent? Yes, he was. He was violent. So a, a violent drunk was the man, of all the men your mother could have married, a violent drunk was the man she chose to get married to and to give children to. Mm -hmm. That is correct. Do, do you not think she has? It's given that she, it's a buyer's market, right? Mm -hmm. Given that women are able to choose from a variety of suitors, and I'm sure that there were Unless I have an entirely optimistic view of Mexican culture as a whole, I'm sure there were at least a few non-drunkards, non-violent mm -hmm. guys for your mom to marry. Yes, there were. Okay. So your mom chose to marry the violent drunken guy. Mm -hmm. Why? How, how attractive was your father? He was not really attractive, I have to say. I mean, okay. when he was younger, yes, of course, but I look like my father. You know? Okay, so, but at the time when your mother was choosing him, he, she he, chose an attractive guy over a good guy. Yes, yes, I okay. have to say And yes. you chose an attractive guy over a good guy. You understand how this yes. pattern works, yes, if you're yes, not aware there's of there's parallels, yes. I know what yeah, you mean. There are parallels. Yes. So your father and your mother were responsible for keeping you safe when you were a child, and you were raped mm -hmm. by three men when you were seven, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Now... Child rape in Mexico. I'm sorry. 
child rape uh-huh. in Mexico. Uh-huh. Um, it doesn't appear to be entirely unheard of, if I can put it that way. Right. What do you think? Uh, no, I think it's more prevalent there than here. Honestly. I agree. Yes. And I agree. Only- here are some numbers. In the first quarter of 2014, allegations of sexual abuse against minors in Mexico increased 73% compared to 2013. Louis Garcia from the National Human Rights Commission explained that in in 2012, five out of 10 children suffered some form of violence. And in 2013, the rate was seven out of 10. Mm -hmm. What will happen when there are 10 out of 10 is the question. So whether it's increased reporting or increased prevalence, I don't know, and I don't know if it's controlled for in this study. But this, of course, is the culture that is coming into America. It is a culture of largely traumatized children. And, of course, 80% of the women who are going from Mexico into America, 80% of them are raped along the way. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's a conveyor belt of heavily traumatized people being dumped into America Yes. And again, massive sympathy. This was not your fault at the age of 10, my God, seven. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not your fault no matter what. There are three guys and it's horrifying and horrible and brutal and vicious and ugly what happened mm-hmm. to you. And it was your parents' responsibility to make damn sure it didn't happen to you and they failed. Yes. And your yes. mother chose a violent drunk who did not protect you yes. from three adult rapists when you were seven and you thought this woman, your mother, would be an excellent, excellent caretaker for your son. Oh, you completely, you went in a different way, too. Okay. All right. Yeah. No, you're right. You were right. And there was an incident that happened uh, much later on after my son was older that, yeah, I think I realized that. Um, yeah, it, it was, um, yeah. We don't have to get into this, and I'm mm-hmm. sorry to have heard this, of course. And um, I, you know, this, I'm trying to give you some patterns here, right? Because oh. your son is going to grow up, and, you know, as of course he is an almost, an almost an adult now, and he's going to have questions. And women have this weird thing, which women can do, and I, I don't fully understand it. But women can just say, stuff happened to me, and everyone's like, okay. And I am a staunch feminist in that I will give women full moral agency. And if I were hearing these excuses from a man, I would say exactly the same thing. I'm not trying to pick on you. I'm just being an egalitarian. So when, you know, Trump is talking about rapists, there was a Fusion article stating that according to directors of migrant shelters, a, quote, staggering 80% of Central American girls and women crossing Mexico en route to the United States are raped along the way. Amnesty International previously estimated the number at 60%, quote, women and girl migrants, especially those without legal status traveling in remote areas or on trains, are at heightened risk of sexual violence at the hands of criminal gangs, people traffickers, other migrants, or corrupt officials. This is from a 2010 Amnesty International report. Of course, the average IQ in Mexico is, what, in the mid-80s, which is the sweet spot for criminal activity, which is... One of the things that uh, is driving Trump's popularity. So I'm trying to give you the respect of moral agency. And, you know, of course, there are going to be a bunch of white knights who are going to come to your defense, and you'll see them in the comments, and I understand that. But that is highly insulting to women. 
Either we're going to say women don't have moral agency, in which case we have to restrict their rights, or we're going to say they do have moral agency, which means you need to be held accountable for the choices that you've made, as does your mother. Yes, that's true. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. And yes, that's true. I did make a choice. I did. Because you want, you want your son, Maria, to mm-hmm. marry or get involved with a woman who takes responsibility for her life, right? Yes. I definitely do. Now, to do that, there's no point lecturing him. To do that, Maria, you need to take 100% responsibility for your life because you're, you are the template of femininity mm-hmm. to your son. Yes. That's and true. do you want him, and I, you know, this sounds like a negative question, but do you want him to end up with a woman who has your worst habits? No. 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 Of course not. You want him to end up with a woman who has your best habits, which means you've got to start expanding your best habits, which means not allowing yourself the excuses that you're shooting at me, but taking 100% ownership. Because that way, if you take 100% ownership, you can break the cycle, which you haven't broken yet. Now, to be fair, you've improved it in that you didn't have a child with a violent, drunken abuser. So that's a step up, but you want that step up to continue which means that you have to take even more ownership for your choices. And I think you've got to stop giving yourself the out of, well, I just didn't know I was pregnant and I didn't know that ejaculate made me pregnant. Like, you, you, you've <laughs> got to stop that. I mean, come on, come on, come on. Yes, I know what you mean. That's bad for your son. That's good for you because you can get away with stuff and pretend to be a victim, but it's bad for your son. Oh, yeah, and I don't want to be a victim. I don't want to be a victim. Right, right, which means you chose this guy you chose him for reasons of vanity, insecurity, past trauma, yes. lack of uh, awareness of your mother's sexual history and her choices. And, and you know, again, there's a lot of people who will help keep that information from you. So I'm not blaming you for all of that. But that's why I'm making this case right now. It's obviously out of concern for you. You're 50. Mm-hmm. Let's say that you do want to, at some point, some guy is going to float around your periphery that you're going to want to be with, right? Right. Most likely. I mean, you've got another... 30 or 40 years to go on the planet. So at some point during that time, and if, if you had that option to be involved in a better relationship, you'd probably want it, right? Yes, yes, I would. But I'll tell you this, Maria. If you try and dump the kind of crap on some guy that you tried to dump on me, a decent guy will run. <laughs> Seriously, I, I, okay. you know, I want you to have a better guy, but that means you've got to be a better person. You've got to be a more honest person. You've got to take ownership of your mistakes. You've got to take responsibility for your choices. And you can't pretend that your life just happened to you like a train driving over a daisy. Because if you kind of tell this stuff, oh, yeah, this guy was great. He knocked me up and didn't even tell me. And I didn't even know I was pregnant. And I didn't know how I could. Like, come on. Well, you think a ridiculous. decent guy is going to be like, that's great. I can't wait to get involved with this woman. <laughs> yes, it sounds ridiculous when you say it that way. But it's, I guess it is true. I didn't say it that way, Maria. <laughs> You said it that way. This yes. is what I'm talking. Don't blame me for telling you what you said. <laughs> no, no, I understand. I understand what you're saying. Yes, I think you're right. I need to be responsible. You know, take responsibility. And if you've told your son this mm-hmm. stuff, you need to tell him the truth. Does that mean I have to tell him that his dad was married? And Everything? Well, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that if you're telling him stuff just happened or, or you know, then, then 
I don't know what you need to tell him because I don't know the complexities of your relationship. Mm-hmm. I don't know his level of emotional maturity. I don't know his status in life. I do know that he's 17. I don't know what you should tell him. Mm-hmm. But if you have a habit of downplaying your own moral agency, mm-hmm. you need to stop doing that because that's programming his sexual preferences for the future. Okay. Or romantic preferences is probably a better way of putting it. His uh, romantic preferences for the future. I mean, the people say, well, why, why do men want a woman like their mom? Well, for obvious genetic reasons that their mother was sexually successful. Because they exist, right? So you know, their mother was sexually successful, which means that that's the template for sexual success. So, evolutionarily, biologically, that is what people prefer. And that is why if you want your son to make better choices than you have, then you have to own your bad choices, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And and even he hasn't started going out, but I see patterns already. I see parallels. I see what he's he's doing with his relationship. Well, certainly now is the time to... Uh, be frank, because, I mean, he's entering into sexual maturity and he's going to start making choices and all that. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. I understand. I understand. All right. Thank you, Steph. Good. Well, I'll try and quit while I'm ahead, and I appreciate the conversation, Maria. I am incredibly sorry for what happened to you as a child. Thank you. Uh, just really Thank wanted you. to, you know, I mean, I try to be pretty frank with people, but I don't want that to obscure my genuine sympathy for what happened to you uh, as a child. That is... um unbelievably brutal and i do applaud you for the better choices that you made compared to what came before and i I really want to respect and honor you for those choices uh, in that your son was not exposed to the level of violence alcoholism and dysfunction that you were for which i'm incredibly sorry so this is not a you bad this is let's all work to get better yes thank you i appreciate that thank you very much appreciate it and uh i'll move on to the next caller bye-bye All right, up next is Peter. Peter wrote in and said, As a new father, I have suddenly come to the realization that I am responsible for the protection and raising of a new life to this world. I believe the biggest threat to Western civilization, and therefore my son, is pathological altruism. I can't see a more blatant example of negative effects of pathological altruism than the forced integration into the West than those who live by the antithetical ideology of Islam. To combat this, I thought I would first try to convince those around me, specifically my immediate family and close friends, about what effect Islamists will have on the West, and have been met with apathy, denial, and outright vitriol for my beliefs and presented facts. My insistence of the danger presented by Islam has been tearing apart my family. As my wife told me yesterday, I would not have married you had I known you were such a hateful person. My own mother has also stated, I don't feel safe in my own house when you're talking like that. I feel demoralized by the reaction of those closest to me, and I have decided for the sake of keeping my family together to only talk about this subject with those outside my family who are open to discussing my ideas. Do you agree that Islam poses a significant threat to the West? Am I copping out, or is there a better way to fight pathological altruism? That's from Peter. Oh, hey, Peter. I'm not even going to ask how you're doing. Because, huh. uh, 
I uh, I think I'm getting a sense. Yeah, definitely. From you know those closest to me, it really is. Uh, it's been pretty demoralizing, to say the least. Did you notice anything in particular about the family members that you had mentioned having the most problems with what you're saying? I noticed they're all female members of my family that have a problem with what I'm saying. I, the, the conversation generally goes like this. Um, uh, Islam is a very dangerous ideology, not unlike other dangerous ideologies like like the KKK or perhaps Nazism. And I try to draw parallels where, where they are similar. And immediately I'm shut down with like this, you know, radical, you know, like you've said, radical mon- fundamentalism of feels, you know, just feeling this hurts my feelings. Therefore you better stop talking about it or I will get really upset and yell at you. And the conversation will end there with a bunch of, of yelling and, you know, no real facts, no real progress in, in me presenting my ideas to them. Okay, so, sorry, uh, Peter, you were talking about the what I've called the fundamentalism of feels. Like, what you're saying is making me anxious, so the solution to that is for you to stop saying stuff, right? Yeah, right. You know, no, no logical uh, discourse, uh, just, you know, from what I've heard in the media and from what I've learned in school and from what everyone else around me is saying, what you're saying is racist or it is bigoted or whatever. And therefore you are a bigot because from what I know, from what I've learned, uh, it's bigoted. So I don't even want to talk about it. I think you discussed this in a, uh, a previous conversation with a caller and uh, he, he said that his girlfriend who was supposed to be on the show with you, uh, uh, you know, said similar things to him, but uh, because, because what he was saying was, you know, to her, it's like, like me, like someone coming to me and saying, do you agree with child abuse? You know, and no one can ever come to me and say, well, let me present you with some facts why child abuse is okay. I would immediately shut them down. You know, I would be like, no, don't talk to me about that. That's ridiculous. I, everything I know in life says that child abuse is wrong. Well, that's how I'm treated when I present Islam as a, uh, you know, hurtful or negative ideology they present me with the same kind of attitude towards me. So I, and do they, do they know anything about Islam? I, I, I hesitate to even ask that question because I know the answer. No, no, they don't. No, they're just, they're Pavlovian dogs who've been trained to respond to certain issues with verbal abuse. That's right. All. I mean, that they have no free will in the matter. They have no knowledge. They have no perspective. Right. And, um, so they've just, they've been programmed to say, verbally abusive things to people they claim to love with no knowledge of the subject matter, right? It's not like they've watched something by Bill Warner or, you know, other people who've discussed some of the challenging aspects of Islam. Uh, They don't have any clue. They've just been programmed to be attack robots uh, if leftist egalitarianism uh, is uh, even questioned, right? Right. Right. And they have no knowledge of the degree to which they're simply reacting out of programming and not thought right i assume they have no knowledge of this no they well they 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 know there are some negatives 
negative aspects to Islam, but there's negative aspects to Christianity and we're, we're Christians. And, uh, my, my mother specifically has said to me, what would Jesus do in this situation? You know, when that's brought up that you better just stop talking because what would Jesus do? Right. Well, um, Jesus was not a pacifist, right? I mean, Jesus, uh, whipped the money changers outside the temples. He did. And uh, Jesus was, you know, threatens with hell those who deny his divinity. Right. And um, the Muslims believe Jesus was a prophet, but not what the Christians believe, right? Yeah. I mean, according to Islam, the Trinity is polytheism, right? Yes. Definitely. Do they think that, um, do they have sympathy for the lives of women under Sharia law? Huh. I can't even get to that, you know, I can't even get there. Can't even start discussing Islam about Sharia law. By then, their emotions are at, you know, like peak, you know, feels and they can't get past, get past the, the, the fact that I'm, I am discriminating against a ideology that billions of people ascribe to. So, I, I can't get there. I can't start talking about. Are they? Sheila. Are they? Sorry. Would they? Would they call themselves feminists at all? Um. Well, I mean, if the you know the general idea of feminism, which is women are equal to men, yes, I would think that they they would ascribe to that, but maybe not the third wave kind of. Feminism. No, no, I get that. Now, if you were to present ideas about women that you got from the Koran as your own personal beliefs, doing nothing to mention anything to do with Islam, like if you would just take the, the tenets um, regarding women, yeah, that is in a lot of um, Islamic texts, and you were to present them as your own ideas to women, <laughs> how do you think they would react? Well, they would say, what's wrong with you that you would say that? That's ridiculous. Ah! Interesting, don't you think? So if you were yes. to present patriarchal ideas as your own, you would be condemned as a patriarch, even though you can't possibly implement those, those ideas and certainly haven't in dozens of countries around the world. So if you were to present Islamic ideas as your own with regards to gender, you would be condemned as a patriarch. But when you condemn those ideas coming from someone else, you're condemned as a bigot. Yes. I think right. I'm seeing a pattern here. <laughs> I think, and the pattern is very simple. The pattern is white guys lose. Right. White guys lose. Yep. That's the pattern. It's, it's all, all it is. White guys lose. See, when white guys go to other countries, that's colonialism and imperialism, and that's bad. But when other cultures come to white countries, anybody who's skeptical about it is a racist and a bigot. That, that seems to be what's happening, yeah. I mean, the, the fact that um, Westerners came to America, that's bad, right? Right. Uh, but the fact that, that the Native Americans came over... Before and genocided the locals, that's not even mentioned, right? <laughs> no. Right. The pattern is, shut up, Peter. Yeah. That's all it is. That's right. It doesn't, ma like, it doesn't matter what you say. If you're a white person putting forward a perspective that's not anti-white person, if you're a male person putting forward a perspective that's not anti-male, shut up. Well, you see, Stefan, I don't think I understand my privilege as a white male, and uh, I'm stepping out of line here, so... Uh Okay, no, so let's let's take that let, let's take that argument and say, okay, so male privilege is a bad idea. 
So then you put forward ideas that are in the Quran around male privilege. Yeah. That women, uh, that men are allowed to beat women, that women must be subservient to men, that women are only equal in judgment day and they're only judged by the degree to which they were subservient to men. The man is the unquestioned ruler of the household. Yeah. And that a woman who accuses a man of rape has to bring four male relatives to verify her story. Right. If you were to put forward these ideas as your ideas, you would be condemned. But if they're Islamic ideas, they must be defended. So it, like, you understand, it doesn't matter what you say. It only matters that you lose. Right. And, and also if you that- were, if, hang on, if you were to take Islamic ideas about kafirs, non-Islamics, if you were to say that this is my perspective about blacks as a white person and you were to repeat exactly the same tenets that are in Islam about non-believers and you were to say this is my white perspective on black people, you would be condemned as an unholy racist, genocidal racist. Definitely. But if you point these things out about Islam, you're a racist for pointing out the things about Islam that you'd be called the racist for believing yourself. So it doesn't, it doesn't really understand. It doesn't matter what you say. As a white male, you can't win, at least in these conversations. So what do I do? Who do I talk to? to... Well, hang on. No, no, we're not there yet. Right. <laughs> we're, not at, we're not at to-dos yet. Okay. We're still making the list. Um, you probably have heard the mythical tale of female empathy. Women, you see, are so sensitive to the feelings of others, and they're really into talking about feelings and exploring feelings, and they love Oprah and Dr. Phil, and they just really, really like to talk about feelings, right? Yeah. You are afraid of something. How interested are these women in empathetically exploring and listening to your fears? Not at all. Well, yeah, not at all. They don't want to hear it. Right. In fact, when you talk about your thoughts and feelings and fears, you are verbally abused, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Where's all of this um, giant reservoir of tender-hearted female empathy and sympathy and curiosity and emotional excellence and emotional intelligence and curiosity and where, where is it well I'm, I'm not as compelling as oprah i guess so i don't know well you're just a male who's speaking a narrative that makes women uncomfortable listen we don't need empathy when we're feeling comfortable we don't need empathy and sympathy when we're fine with whatever anyone's saying We don't need tolerance when we're happy with what people are saying. We need tolerance and sympathy and empathy when we're unhappy with what people are saying. You know, someone someone comes up to me and says, Steph, you won the lottery. I don't know. Let's pretend I won it. It's not making me. Someone goes up to someone else, says, you won the lottery. Here's a million dollars. Does the person need a lot of tolerance and empathy to accept that? (laughs) No. Because they're already happy about it. Yeah. You know, if, if you go to some racist place and you say, you echo whatever racist sentiments are around, do they tolerate you? Well, yeah, if they're racist, then I'm... No, they, they don't tolerate you because they don't need tolerance because they already agree with you. Right. You need tolerance for that which you disagree with. 
And so the fact that you're saying things that women in your life don't like or don't agree with, that's when they need the virtue called empathy, curiosity, sympathy, and tolerance. I see, yeah. And there are a lot of men, and some women, we've had them on this show, who are concerned about what's happening in the West. And I'm just noticing that a lot of these conversations tend to get shut down by women. Not all. But one of the things you're concerned about is that if this, and I, again, genuinely hope that it doesn't, and I don't even know what the odds are that it does, but should the worst fears be realized and there would be conflict, who's going to war, Peter? Me. Your mom? No. No. Your wife? No. No, and like there's some legislation that's working its way through the interminable U.S. political system, which uh, says that women may be eligible for the draft. Women can be eligible for the draft. <laughs> now, first of all, the draft hasn't been used since Vietnam. Yeah. So it's not that big a deal. And secondly, it's not old women who are eligible for the draft. It's young women who are eligible for the draft. And young women have a get-out-of-draft-free card called eggs. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, this uh, is... Um, this idea that you can found military prowess on fertile women is like unbelievable. There's, there's something called building your house on sand and there's something called building your house on water. And it really is just absolutely astounding the degree to which people think that something has to do with, you know, we got, um, you know, we got a message from a guy after we talked about this with the, uh, the last one of the callers recently who talked about women in the military. And he said that there was this, he said it's anecdotal, but, but he doesn't think there's any reason why it's not true. There's some woman in the Navy who timed all of her pregnancies that she could serve the entire six years without ever being deployed and being on government welfare. So the military, women in the military to some degree is just another giant welfare state of non-combat ready women. Not to mention the fact that, um, you know, a 120 pound woman isn't dragging my ass off a battlefield. So you have fears, fears for your son, right? Your son is born, your son is going to grow up. And if there is a conflict in 18 years, your son's going to be dragged into it, probably, right? Yeah. So where is, in, in, in your life, in, in, with the women around you, Peter, where is their empathy for your legitimate fears for them, for your son, for yourself? Being a father doesn't get you out of a war. Being pregnant does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're, they're non-existent, uh, the, the concerns for my son, it seems. You know, it, because I believe they don't think it, that a, a conflict is going to happen. They, they don't see it. Well, if they didn't, look, if they didn't think a conflict was going to happen, then they would listen. They wouldn't get upset. Yeah. Right? Like, let, let's say you had some innocuous mole and you said, I think that's cancer. Huh. 
and your wife was a dermatologist, looked at it and said, no, that's just a mole. She wouldn't say, I'm, I'm terrified and feel unsafe in my own house because you've brought this up, right? Yeah. That's right. And, and men are there to perceive threats. Not women. Because women have an evolutionary advantage. Young, fertile women in particular have an evolutionary advantage in conflict in that they can surrender their vaginas to the invaders and survive. Men can't. Right. Right. What does the what does the new male lion do who's the king of the pride? Well, he kills off all the male competitors and their children. And then mates with the women. So women have an evolutionary strategy, particularly, you know, uh, white women have just about the highest sexual market value in the world, according to some studies. Yeah. So women evolutionarily are not that interested in protecting borders because they can't compete against men when it comes to combat. You know, women love, I love women, they're wonderful, but they're tiny, frail little things when it comes to physical combat, right? There's a reason that the genders generally are segregated when strength and speed and power have anything to do with victory. They have to be. I mean, if you, if you gender blend Wimbledon, it gets fairly titless at the higher echelons, right? Right. So the fact that women don't perceive a threat is not too shocking at all. And the fact that the only threat that women perceive is your perception of a threat is also not too shocking. Yeah. And evolutionarily speaking, throughout most of human history, it was the strongest and most aggressive specimens who survived and flourished. So I will tell you what my particular suggestion will be. I'm, you know, again, I try to rigorously avoid telling anyone what to do, but I will tell you my suggestions, which is, don't talk about this stuff with them. Don't. I mean, you know that because you've stopped anyway, right? Right. I have. Uh, unfortunately, you can't unsee what you've seen, or maybe that's fortunate. I don't know. But you've got a set of data points about some aspects of female nature, right? Right. And it's important to be aware of that. And, you know, it has not escaped my attention that at the moment – the societies that put women most on the pedestal are dying off, and the societies that subjugate women are spreading, flourishing, and aggressively confident in their expansions. I'm just point. I don't know all of the causes for it. It's just that pattern's pretty hard to avoid and escape. Definitely. Yeah. So you have gotten married. You have a child. Yeah. It's important to have a clear-eyed view, an unsentimental view of female nature. And again, when I'm talking about female nature, I'm talking about a bell curve, right? I'm not talking about all women, right? Right. But it is important to have a clear-eyed view of female nature and to understand that if you treat women just like men, let's just say you're going to be surprised quite a bit. And we have, of course, this R-selected demonic perception that we should treat women just like men. But of course, everybody knows that Right. This is why they have to lower the standards for women in the army and they have to lower standards for women when it comes to um, uh, police work and, and when lower standards for women when it comes to being a fireman. 
or fire person, whatever. I mean, there's studies that show that women cops shoot people more than male cops. Why? Because they can't intimidate them and they can't physically overpower them, so they have to shoot them. So, yeah, if you want women in uniform uh, as cops, you just have to accept a certain extra number of shootings. I don't know. It's mad. That is mad. And, of course, uh, women need different standards insofar as they had to change the standards for education, right? Because, um, you know, and it's, it's one of these confusing things because girls will sometimes develop faster than boys in terms of verbal skills and so on, and girls do pretty well. And then around mid-puberty, the boys start outstripping the girls, and everyone's like, oh, no, the, well, it must be sex. No, it's just that which takes longer to develop ends up more complex. The reason why you can get 12 billion oysters a second and, and one child a year. And so what they've done, I think this is in American education, what they've done is they've just said, okay, <laughs> in order to get more women into college, in order to get more women graduating with higher grades or girls, what we're going to do is we're going to put more emphasis on homework and less emphasis on tests and more homework on organization and less home, less emphasis on exams because boys do better with exams and girls do worse, but well, girls do more homework, which is kind of funny when you think about it all, all around. But, but so they've, they've changed, they, all they do is like when women, when men or women have unequal outcomes, they simply ch- change the playing field or they change the rules so that the outcomes, they, they can pretend that they're more equal. So even those subsidies, and, and the funny thing is, is that I don't, I mean, the reality is life is a series of exams. Every single one of these conversations is an exam for me. I pass or I fail. I do well or I do badly. The amount of prep that I put going into these call-in shows, it has some effect on the outcomes. But it comes down to this conversation. It doesn't matter how many oranges you cut with a scalpel. It matters how you cut the person. Now, again, the oranges help, but it only comes down to how you cut the person. So the idea that we can somehow de-emphasize tests and end up with something that mirrors the real world of the free market. You know, if you're a salesperson, it only matters whether you close. It doesn't matter how many times you read the manual. It doesn't matter how many seminars you attend. It only matters if you close. Now, if, if doing the seminars helps you close, fantastic. But it doesn't, like, you can't say, well, okay, I haven't sold anything for the last two months, but I've been to every seminar, so I should get the same bonus as people who haven't been to the seminars but have closed 20 deals in the past two months. It only matters that you close the deals. It only matters that you cut in the right place. It only matters that the computer you design actually boots up. It doesn't matter how much neatness you had in your binders. It doesn't matter how much. It doesn't matter. It only matters whether it works or it doesn't, whether you succeed or whether you fail, right? So you just, if there's unequal outcomes, you just change the rules, change the standards, lower the standards, adjust whatever you need to do to pretend that you have equal outcomes. Now, anybody with any shred of self-respect or dedication to reality would be highly offended at that. Highly offended at that. No, don't lower the standards for me. How terrible. I don't want that. I want to win fair and square. I want to be in the competition and I want to emerge victorious without cheating because lowering the standards for other people is cheating. But there aren't a lot, there are some, but there aren't a lot of women out there saying, no, 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 we got to have the same standards for everyone. Oh, come on. Women are supposed to be equal to men. Let's just all have the same standards. Why? Because they know they can't compete. 
Because even in the military, 96% of military women cannot do the bare minimum or the basics for the physical requirements to be in the infantry. 96% of the trained women can't do it. So if we have equality of opportunity without socially engineered equality of outcomes, women are going to lose in a whole bunch of areas. But because we have this R-selected Marxist bullshit that all unequal outcomes result from prejudice and discrimination and evil and whatever, white males, the new Satan of the new religion. So you just, you know, and I'm sorry that this is happening to you at this time, but it happens to all of us, right? The red pill is rarely administered orally. (laughs) But uh, you just, you're getting a glimpse of the women around you and their true capacity for curiosity and empathy and and so on, and the degree to which they're programmed. Mm. You know, why do the leftists focus on feels rather than reason? Because a lot of women operate on the fundamentalism of feels. It feels bad, therefore it is bad. This is why you have things called hate speech, as if speech can be hateful. Speech are just words. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. So, and of course, women are, because they're women are, um, women are more socially reliant for reasons of evolution that you need a village to raise a child or satisfy Bill Clinton. So you need, women need to be more horizontally integrated than men. Men can go out and compete with each other in war and hunting, but women have to cooperate to raise the kids. So women are more susceptible to verbal abuse than men are. Because ostracism for a man happens a lot. I'm sure when you were young, you had male friends and you'd get angry at each other and then you'd be okay the next day, right? Right, yeah. But, you know, women will often nurse a grudge till it grows a beard and dies of old age and then gets interred and then gets dug up 2,500 years later in the bowels of some pyramid. And that's, to some degree, evolutionarily adapted female nature. And so words wound women in a way that they don't wound men. And if a man cries out that wounds, if a man cries out that words have wounded him, what do we think? He's lost. He's lost the argument. Yeah. Kind of a pussy, right? Yeah. But if women cry out that words are wounding them, what do we say? Poor you. I'll stop. I must that. ride up in my white knight charger and make the bad words stay away from the eggs. <laughs> if the eggs are upset by syllables, I ride in with my politically correct shield and I will banish said syllables from the discomfort of the eggs. Because, hey, can I get some eggs? Am I going to get some eggs for that? <laughs> right. So, men are part of the problem, too, then, right there. That we're doing that, that we're running up as white knights, you know, and, and, and saying that this is okay to our women. No, but come on. I mean, I'm giving women to the evolutionary out of, of, of adaptation, but men too. Yeah. Men who displease women die out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Men who displease women die out. That's right. White knighting is a perfectly valid, albeit somewhat stomach turning, but perfectly valid evolutionary strategy. Right. Yeah. You know, if you've got to mouth certain platitudes in order to get access to the eggs, evolutionarily, what will you do? Mouth certain platitudes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the the people in my life that I, I can discuss these things with all happen to be leftists. 
And they do entertain a discussion with me, but it does always seem to boil down to I am privileged. I'm white. I've had all the, the, uh, the privileges of being where I am in this country. So now it's time for other people to, to, to catch up. So if that means me being pushed down a little bit, white men being pushed down, well, then it'll help everyone else catch up. And then maybe we can rediscuss, uh, equality when everyone's equal. Right. Yeah, and, and because they don't know about race and IQ, right. they assume that Africa is poor because white people are rich. Yeah. And therefore, you know, African migrants are just coming back to take what was stolen from them, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah no, again, if you take the premises that all human beings are equal and all genders are equal and, and we're all just basically one big giant Buck Rogers postmodernist blob of space-suited oneness – then, yeah, of course, all discrepancies must be due to privilege, prejudice, class war, race, like whatever it's going to be, right? Racism and sexism. Yeah, I get that. If you take that premise, yeah, makes sense. If I say there's no difference between redheads and everyone else, but I will never hire a redhead, then clearly I must be prejudiced. I mean, of course, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's why, that's why any, any facts about biological differences between human beings and between the genders must be resolutely kept away from the public sphere. Because it destroys that narrative. It destroys that narrative. Yeah. And the other thing, too, of course, that you can say to leftists, if, I, if I'm so privileged, why can't I use my privilege to maintain that privilege? Right. You know, you know who was privileged? Stalin. <laughs> Stalin, pretty, pretty fucking privileged. And Stalin was able to maintain his privilege by killing everyone who disagreed with him. Right. Now, that's an extreme example, of course. But if there is all this privilege, then why can, you know, because the idea is, well, white men have all this privilege and white men enjoy that privilege and want to keep it. It's like, then why can't we keep it? Right? So, because if, if, according to the theory, right, according to the theory, white men have all this privilege and enjoy this privilege and want to keep it from others, so then why can't we? If you genuinely have privilege, you can use that privilege. Now, if you can't, Keep your privilege, you never had it, or at least you don't have it now. Right. So it, it's an argument that doesn't take. Yeah, and also, if you genuinely have privilege and that privilege is oppressive and unjust, well, you can't criticize it. You know, there's that old saying, if you want to know who rules over you, all you have to do is look at who you are not allowed to criticize. And if, if white men have all this privilege and all this power and are so mean and brutal and nasty in the maintenance and expansion of their power and privilege, why the, how can you possibly criticize them? Go, go to North Korea, try criticizing the god emperor over there. Well, that guy's got some privilege, and you'll be disappeared very quickly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, try going to um, Mecca and, and criticizing particular tenants over there. Well, they've got some privilege, and they will exercise it. So if white men are so all-powerful, and, and we have such great... Then how the... How the hell are we subject to so much criticism and abuse? It's like we have to ask for permission to be able to to do anything. You know, it, it's like, um, you know, to, to be able to say um, you're a white guy, you're privileged, whatever, um, then it's like, well, then 
uh, because I'm privileged, then is it okay then if I, if I, if I, uh, you know, maybe have a little bit more clout in, in, uh, talking about these other religions? No, no, that's not okay. You, you don't have privilege. Yeah. Privilege is just another way of saying, shut up, Peter. Yeah. Shut up. No, I know. Yeah. Right. And, and the reason that you're supposed to shut up is you have stuff people want. Right. Privilege, you elevate people so that you can attack. Right? You, you, you elevate people so you can exploit them. Oh, you're so all-powerful and, and you're such a bad person that any action I take against you is just and fair. Yeah. And I'm only taking back what you took from me. Yeah. Right? In order to, to justify the, the predation and ownership of other human beings – in, in what we have now, which is not direct slave ownership, but sort of economic tax farm serfdom, you have to say that you're privileged so that you don't have to look in the mirror and say, I'm a parasite, because you just say, no, that was my bite. I'm just taking it back. Yeah. You're just the, you're the fattest cow around. <laughs> you put out the most milk and you can uh, be disassembled for the most meat. Right. Okay. And that is a hard... It's a hard fact to face, right. but um, you 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 can't be you you can't be a civilized human being and deny empirical evidence. And so, to some degree, if you have to bypass the opinion of these particular women in order to get to the truth, right? Yeah. But this is the challenge is that maybe, just maybe, in order to deal with particular difficult truths, we have to offend women. But as men, we are hardwired to not offend women. Yeah. Right? That, that's the challenge. Because, okay, maybe we have to, you know, women are not that great at understanding existential threats and, and you know, they, they have evolutionarily far less at stake if there's a conquering going on, you just have to look at the war brides of Europe and the number of women who slept with the Nazis during the occupation um, in France and, and in other countries, that um, women have less, far less at stake. The men get killed and the women get raped, and that's unpleasant. Or maybe they sleep with the men voluntarily. I don't know. Maybe they're turned on. But 40% of women have rape fantasies. I don't know. Men do. I don't think they do. But... Um, So men have to kind of bypass the offense felt by women in the pursuit of, of these difficult truths, but men are hardwired to not, well, Western men, actually, Western men are hardwired to not yeah. bypass the feelings of women or to offend women because Western women have been treated the best throughout history. And the reasons for that, evolutionarily speaking, are long and complex and so on, but there have been laws against raping women and there haven't been these crazy requirements in other cultures or all these witnesses and so on, but there have been laws against raping women for thousands of years in the West. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 the deference to femininity in the West is a, a source of great strength. And I'm not saying I want that to magically go away. But the deference to femininity in the West is a 
powerful part of Western culture and arises for philosophical reasons and also for biological reasons. And that has put us in a tough place at the moment. Yeah. Put us in a tough place at the moment because we are programmed as white Western males to defer to women. But women at the moment have been cupped up the yin-yang in order to avoid reality. So now we're between a rock and a hard place that we need to accept the reality of certain potential threats. But at the same time, that's offensive to our women. Yeah. So we are at war with ourselves as men in the West, I dare say. So what we're waiting for is for the conflict to come to a head to have this conflict come into the mainstream, have everything you know, come to fruition, what lay in the bed that we've laid as Western civilization. And then it's time for the men to stand up and say, this is what's happened. We well, that's tough up. though. Yeah, that's, that's tough. Uh, that's, uh, and this is because of the internet and because, you know, male solidarity and male, like even vague hints of male in-group preferences are kind of floating around. But the degree to which men have been, you know, put down and shit upon for the past half century. Yeah. Uh, means that a lot of men are not going to want to fight to save a system that has abused them. Right. Right. So, and that's sort of the point, right? I mean, if men fight to save women and they fight to save children, but a lot of men don't have children and a lot of men don't like modern Western femininity, so what are they going to fight for? And if, if women, because if, right now the problem is solvable yeah, through prevention, right? Right. If there is to be a problem, it can be solved through prevention. You know, reduce some aspects of the welfare state, limit migration. Like, there's things that you can do. All legal, uh, you know, that would be uh, enacted legally and, and relatively peacefully and all that, right? Through, through the democratic process, right? So this problem can be prevented. But if, if women end up standing in the way of it being prevented... How many men are going to say, yeah, I'm willing to go and fight and die when this whole problem could have been prevented, but am I going to go and fight and die women who got us into this mess? Or die for women. Sorry, go and fight and die for women who got us into this mess. Again, these are all theoreticals. I don't know. No. Yeah. They would not. I would. Well, if they do, if they do, there will be a price. If they do, there will be a price. In other words, there's the, the men I doubt are going, not going to risk life and limb to fight to return to the system that is. Right. There will be a price because all mercenaries demand payment and there will be a price for defending the West and it will not be, we'll just return it to the way that it was. Yeah. That's, that's why Donald Trump is so popular in the, in the United States right now that everybody's moving towards, you know, a, an alpha male's kind of perspective because we've done the matriarchal thing for so long. You know, we've tried that out. Things aren't going so well. So now things are starting to move towards, you know, the Donald Trump, uh, ideology, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, he is, um, he is working to prevent problems that anybody with half a brain knows, or at least considers likely are going to escalate until we get more problems. So he's working to prevent. He's a, a very, a very pacifist candidate as far as that goes. Yeah. Uh, he is the best chance for the most peaceful resolution of these issues, in my opinion. 
Yeah. I, I think you're right because, um, you know, if he can do it, if he can actually get in and be president, you're going to see, um, him, you know, bringing up policies that will fix a lot of things. And when they're, when they get fixed, people are going to have to change their mind or, uh, ignore reality. That's what it seems like, you know, limiting immigration. Oh my gosh. All of a sudden we ha- have a lot less money being funneled to, you know, the third world or a lot less money being funneled to those who don't produce. And then you have a lot more money to spend on your own citizens that have contributed to the system that we have right now. Without a doubt, there needs to be a revival of the American economy. And by that, I primarily mean a revival of the manufacturing base of the American economy. Right. If the government is going to even remotely have a chance of even paying any portion of its bills, the American economy needs to be revived. It's the old idea of grow your way out of debt. Yeah. You know, I've got a lot of debt, but if I can make more money, then the debt becomes more manageable. Uh, If the economy cannot grow, the system will collapse. Yeah. Now, for all of Donald Trump's foibles and failures and, you know, it was not the best husband in the known universe and all that, the guy knows how to grow and he knows how to grow a business. Yeah. He knows how to grow a business. And those who say, well, you know, we don't want this and all, well, okay, then, then all you're saying is that you want people in who have nothing, who have no knowledge about how to grow an economy, which means the government can't pay off its debt, which means collapse into third world hellhole. I mean, that's that's just a fact. So I don't know whether the policy, and nobody knows, but I don't know whether the policies that Trump wants to enact are going to revitalize the American manufacturing base. A lot of skills and capital and all that has gone overseas. I don't know if it's going to be enough to pull it back. I don't know if a simplification of the tax code is going to be enough to pull the trillions of dollars currently held outside the U.S. for fear of ruinous corporate taxation. I don't know if it's going to be enough to bring it back. He does. And I, you know, I, I try not to, to lecture experts. You know, like <laughs> people are like, you know, I have experts on the show. Well, why aren't I debating them? It's like, because they're the experts. I don't argue with my dentist either. Right. So he has, a, you know, just by virtue of him being a staggeringly competent human being who's, I mean, seriously, the guy's great at everything. Yeah. Great writer, great businessman, great television executive, great reality TV star, the best politician who's come along in, at least for me, living memory. Because you say, oh, well, Reagan, yeah, but. Reagan was head of the Screen Actors Guild. He was governor of California. He had tons of political experience. Yeah. Trump's wandered in out of nowhere. And the, this man is a staggeringly competent human being. I have a bit of a fetish for competence. I like the best singers. I like the best logicians. I, like, I, I just love the best of stuff. Yeah. And uh, it is to me, watching people criticize Donald Trump, given his relentless intelligence and competence in various fields, which even if you dislike all of his policies, you at least have to admit he's staggeringly successful in just about everything he puts his hands to. Definitely, definitely. It's just like, it's like watching a bunch of sheep trying to pee on Michelangelo's David because, why? Because they're sheep. And the Dunning-Kruger effect is strong in culture these days. So I don't know. You know, all the libertarians, ah, oh, you know, trade war. I don't know. I don't like I don't know enough about his reasoning behind China devaluing the currency, causing X, Y, and Z. And I don't know the degree to which he's saying these trade deals are terrible. I do know that free trade generally doesn't come in three thousand page buckets of tiny two point squinto vision regulations. Free trade tends to be the removal of regulations, not here's six thousand more pages of how we're going to resolve free trade issues. That's not free trade, that's right. mercantilism at best, if not downright socialism. 
Yeah. So I don't know. And I, I'm, you know, I've got on my list of things to do to examine Trump's trade policies and figure out what he knows that I don't and find out whether I agree with it or not, whether he's got reasons behind. But in general, um, if someone is staggeringly competent and stuff, they just have a lot of credibility with me. Yeah. They, they just do. Uh, and um, that's just, you know, the basic, you know, if you like Michael Buble, then you're probably going to pick up his latest album, even if you've never heard it, because, you know, he's probably not going to be doing renditions of Yoko Ono songs and Andy Summers' mother from Synchronicity 2. <laughs> damn blemish on a fine album. Ah, that's why we had tapes, so we could exclude that album. Sorry, Andy. Good guitarist. Excellent. Prop for peroxide. But man, you write some shitty songs. So anyway, um, that is... Um, that is the reality that if the American economy can't be resuscitated, the system's going down. And if it can be resuscitated, maybe it's got a chance. But anybody who's not going to try and put the economy into the hands of a competent business person, um, all they're doing is guaranteeing that the system is, uh, well, I'd say toast, but that's an insult to toast, which I quite like in the morning. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm up in Canada, but I mean, the American economy definitely, I don't know what percentage of our, our trade is with the U.S., but I know it's, it's more than 50%. I think it's 80. Oh, no, no, it? no, sorry. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's, it's a lot. I don't know. 80s from a, a while ago. And I know that some stuff have gone sort of east-west since then. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, uh, if America catches a cold, uh, Canada gets uh, more than a sore throat. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and what you're talking about with free trade, um, I don't know if you live near Toronto. I live near Vancouver. And the price of houses here is ridiculous of uh, detached homes. And that is like because there is a world market and other countries don't allow people to park their money as much as, you know, British Columbia or, or Ontario does. So people are all parking their money, which is displacing families in uh, in this in, in Canada around the hotspots of where all the real estate uh, investment is. Right. So. When you're talking about Donald Trump combating like that sort of thing, I, I think that that's what he's he's talking about. There's un unfairness, and uh, anyway, uh, you know. Well, and, you know, maybe it wouldn't be the end of the world. I mean, I don't mind an increased demand for a particular good, but because Canadian municipalities mostly have a stranglehold on development through crazy zoning laws, yeah, it's not like you can easily build. Uh, anything new to to take into account you know normally when people want a whole bunch more of x more x gets made yeah. but the real estate development is not even close to the free market in a lot of canadian places and so you've got this increased demand with the government restricting supply so of course you're going to get massive price increases yeah yeah but uh you know if i could go back to uh talking about islam and and trying to uh you know, educate or, you know, just get a, an honest answer from the people around me. I mean, it's, I guess what, what you said for the, for the They've females, given you an honest it. answer. They've given you an honest answer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They've given you a very honest answer and it's a bit brutal and I'm sorry that that is the case. But um, they've they've given you a very honest answer. You know, half of philosophy, in fact, half of philosophy in 90% of relationships is just listening to people. Just yeah. listen. They have very clearly told you where they're at. Now, maybe, you know, we all have, we are high atheists, we all have emotional reactive things. Yeah. And then what happens is we sit there and say, okay, well, maybe I, sorry, you know, sorry, Peter, I 
you know, I'm thinking about what you said. I think I had a bit of a politically correct reaction and, you know, I love you and you're the father of my child and you're the husband of uh, my daughter and, you know, we've got to get along as a family and I'm sorry that I reacted and called you these terrible names of racist and, and all of this. So, whew, you know, I apologize. Uh, you know, here's a steak dinner and let's let's talk it out, right? That can happen. Yeah. Right? And it is the 24 hours after being insulted that is the crucial time. In my opinion, I mean, it's, it's a very short half-life for apologies. They don't tend to come three weeks later. Right. Because if people don't apologize within 24 hours, what they're doing is busily constructing scenarios and fantasies in which they're right and you're wrong, and those harden over time and become more impenetrable. And that's been my experience. I don't know if it's a universal phenomenon, but that's been my experience. Yeah. Yeah. So given that this happened, uh, you know, I, and I'm sorry for the length of time it takes for people to get on the show. That's why we added this third show. Yeah. But uh, I would assume that in the you know you'd have told me uh, if by the when you sent this in to now if the women had come forward and said whoa Peter sorry man just kind of flew off the handle and I really want to help uh, help me understand where you're coming from right they haven't right no no okay so to get the facts about people you just need to be an empiricist what did they say and what did they do after they said well they really insulted you and again it's hard not to take things personally yeah. Of course, right? I mean, your mother-in-law, your wife, right? I mean, they, they said horrible things. You know, I really, I mean, if I'd have known you were this kind of person, I wouldn't have married you. That is a horrible, horrible thing to hear. Right. I don't feel safe in my own house because of your opinions, like you're some rampaging dangerous, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know, send her to Cologne on New Year's Eve. And anyway, yeah. but um, these are horrible things to hear. And the, pro the problem you're facing, I would assume, is something like this, that if you give your, uh, those, the women around you full moral agency, then they're fully responsible for what they said and their failure to apologize. However, if you strip them of moral agency and say, well, it's kind of childish, but I'm going to treat them in the way that sometimes children get angry and irrational and, you know, when you're training a puppy, it's going to bite your ankle sometimes, but you don't, right? You don't turn it into Chinese food, right? So... Yeah. You, you either are going to have to downgrade their moral agency in order to not take what they said personally, or if you keep their moral agency very high, then they're fully responsible for what they did, in which case you have a big challenge because then you have to take it personally, right? Yeah. Um, given where you are right now, I would tend to the former. Right. And um, I have... I do have some sympathy and, and, you know, and I'm, I'm sorry that you were insulted in this way. I really am. But I do have some sympathy because women, a lot of women in the West live in this completely unreal world. Right? They've got governments catering to their every whim. They've got a media that constantly tells them that they're superior to everyone around them. I mean, I don't know if you heard the call I had with Maria. Yeah, I did. But genuinely bewildered at the basic questions I was asking. Right. Yeah. If, if you subsidize unreality, don't be surprised if you end up with a lot of unreality. Right. And, and men's deference to women combined with the power of the state has created a pretty unreal world for a lot of women. And I view them as almost being force fed disorienting drugs yeah. through the media. And I, again, I'm not trying to say zero moral agency. 
But, you know, all of this, women are superior, women are better, men are idiots, men are patriarchs, women, men, women good, man bad, women good, man bad. Rinse and repeat until everybody loses their minds and half their civilization. Yeah. So they have been very heavily propagandized and kept away from basic reality. Women can live in unreality because that reality is subsidized by others. Yeah. And I have sympathy for that. And, and the reason I say that is my basic empathy is like, because I grew up hard scrabble. I, I mean, I grew up in a bad family, in a bad neighborhood, in a bad environment in general. And nobody blew any smoke of vanity and praise up my ass. I sort of fought hard. And, you know, great pressure makes great diamonds. That's sort of the hope that you, you turn the harshness into glory the best that you can. But can you imagine growing up a woman in the West, especially an attractive woman? Can, can you, can you imagine? Yeah. Can you? Because because you know when you're a man, your sexual market value when you're young, unless you're like one of the five percent of Chadley monster thundercock heads who can you know bag all the women they want just by pulling them, pulling at them. If you, I mean, you, low sexual market value makes men strive. That's why we have civilization, right? I mean, but can you imagine growing up as an attractive woman in the West, all female teachers? The entire system is set up for you to succeed and for boys to fail. The boys are rambunctious and restless and punchy and, and they're always being corrected and then they get drugged for bad behavior and they're called ADHD problems and all the women are sailing along with their perfectly neat little notebooks and get nothing but praise and women's um, girls' schoolwork gets marked as better than boys. If it's anonymized, it's, it's the same or even worse. But when somebody knows their goals, they mark them up. Can you imagine having that kind of subsidies? Can you imagine having a media a media that constantly tells you how wonderful you are and how unreliable and shifty and vaguely gross men are, right? Like I was watching the movie Bridesmaids the other day and, you know, the little girls were all pretty nice in a lot of ways and then the woman was complaining about the masturbatory habits of the little boys saying she can't even bend their sheets anymore. A, that's a little funny. B, you know, men are gross and girls, you know, what are, what are girls, right? Uh, sugar and spice and all things nice and boys, puppy dogs, tails, and nasty nails, or whatever it is, Snips, right? Simpsons, snails, and puppy dog tails, yeah. Exactly. So I can't for the life of me imagine growing up in an environment, educational and political and cultural, where I was constantly praised and rendered truly dissociated and disoriented by massive payons to a culturally created near bottomless vanity. Everybody took my side. If I cried, everybody rushed to solve the problem. If I stubbed my toe, everybody rushed to move the offending object out of the way. If I got upset, everybody rushed to attack whoever was upsetting me. Like, I, I literally can't imagine what that's like. To not be challenged, to be deferred to, and have every obstacle removed from me. And to be told that I was all-powerful, on the one hand, the complete equal, if not superior to a man, and yet at the same time, have zero moral agency, and I'm always a victim. Yeah. Right? I, I'm, I'm a superior to men. But if something happens I don't like, I'm a victim and men must be blamed and attacked for it. Do you need to? No, no I, I don't. I'm, I'm sorry. He's Do you have some, someone there for you? Yeah, my, my okay. wife is there. Okay, well, we'll, we'll keep it quick because it's been a long show. So just try, like, try it, it, having empathy for people who don't have a lot of empathy for you is tough, but it's important. Yeah. And just try and picture what it's like. Growing up 
where everyone takes your side, everyone attacks your enemies, everyone excuses your behavior. Yeah. Everybody says that you're an all-powerful victim in that which ben- sorry, everyone says that you're all-powerful in that which benefits you and are just a victim in that which you regret. Yeah. No. And this is not just I mean this is certain minorities as well, but this is like how disorienting would that be? Right. And you'd want to fight to keep that system going because it, you know, definitely benefits well, you. All delusions fight to sustain themselves. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. All delusions fight to sustain themselves. That's why states took over schools. I mean, and it would be offensive. Like, it's it's physics now. It's not even just like, well, this is a perspective. This is, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've definitely painted a, you know, an enlightening picture for me when it comes to, uh, you know, the women in my life. And I, I do think you are right that the, the best way to go about it is just to say, well, you know, they've been fed this and... You know, they're fighting to keep this delusion alive and I've got to operate within that system. I got to operate within that, that knowledge. Well, you do now because you're dead, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, and I do appreciate all the work you've done on peaceful parenting and, and all the tips you've, you've given in, in your, your podcast. And hopefully your wife's on board with that, which is yes more important in many ways than her views on Islam. Yeah. Definitely. She is. And, and like, you know, we've read books and, and things like that, but, um, it, you know, I, I just appreciate all the work you've done and, and and for the insight you've given me to these subjects. I mean, this is this is pivotal information for me. And and all I was really looking for is some solidarity and some facts and reason. I mean, talking to you is so like a breath of fresh air, and I appreciate that very much. I, I appreciate that. And, and you know, Peter, I, I really respect your courage to take on these issues um, at this point in your life. I mean, that is... You got a balancing act, as we all do, who are trying to change the world. And um, I, I appreciate that. And listen, massive kudos to your wife for the peaceful parenting stuff. Cool. You yeah. know, let's let's give credit where credit is due. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that is, you know, the fa- was it you who brought the peaceful parenting stuff to her? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So she's given you credibility enough as a man to listen to you about how to parent. Yeah. And that's very important. That is very important. And the fact that you, you know, don't have credibility in this other area, which you can't do anything about. Like if you had the choice between having her believe you with Islam or having her believe you with regards to peaceful parenting, I'm, I'm guessing you'd choose peaceful parenting. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Because having, you, having her agree with you about Islam isn't going to change a thing in the moment in particular just with regards to the two of you, right? right? But having her agree with you with regards to peaceful parenting, that's... Not as common, you know, we get a lot of messages from guys who are like, yeah, I'm into the peaceful parenting thing, but my wife is, or, you know, it happens with wives who say, I've learned about this, but my husband is, right? Right. And so as far as the quality of your life goes, the quality of your child's life goes, that is the more important thing for her to listen to you about. And the fact that she has is a very good, uh, in my opinion, and, and more relevant. And to let the other stuff go yeah. and, and focus on, on the treasure you've got with there. And you never know. Right. You've planted some seeds. And a lot of times, listen, the number of messages that I get of like people who said, oh, I thought you were this, you know, arrogant, uh, uh, unbelievably pompous uh, wind. OK, that's all true. But <laughs> right? so, yes, I agree. But um, they say, you know, I couldn't stand what you said, but I just felt compelled to keep listening. And then click, 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 boom, 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 jigsaw puzzle in place. Thank you. Right. So a lot of times people react very negatively to to what I'm saying. They think it has something to do with me. I'm just, you know, don't shoot the messenger. But sometimes you plant seeds and you just wait for the rain. Yeah. Yeah. 
hopefully not the rain of blood, but you know, <laughs> you wait, you wait for that, which is going to germinate. And it may be that next year or five years from now, they'll be like, whoa, man, you were right. Yeah. Okay. There are women who are intensely deluded by a whole bunch of, uh, lefty nonsense, but it's possible that even if they, they may come around to your way of thinking, even if they won't admit that they're wrong. So don't, it's not, it's not a one shot thing, right? I mean, otherwise I just will do one podcast and retire. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that you're right about the germination thing, that that does come to fruition. And I mean, I think we're going to see things unfold pretty quickly in the West, especially in Europe. And I mean, I've made some statements and if I'm right, then Maybe they'll start to listen to me a little bit more. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, enjoy enjoy your parenting and enjoy the fact that your wife is on board with the peaceful parenting. That is going to do a lot more for your life happiness than anything else. So right. uh, I would definitely enjoy uh, and respect that aspect of things. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Stefan. Right. Thank you, Peter. And thank you, everyone. Rip off the earpiece. Thank you, everyone, so much for your delightful and deep, and powerful contributions to this conversation. Freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. We need your help to grow. We need your help to fund. And FDRURL.com slash Amazon if you've got some shopping to do. You know, just make it one of your bookmarks. If you go to Amazon a lot, just make it your homepage, uh, part of your homepage, so you can do that. Just, you know, set homepages, open it up, set the current page. And then if you've got some shopping to do, you don't need to remember FDRURL.com slash Amazon. FDR Podcasts dot com to uh, share the podcasts uh, if you would do so if you're watching this please like subscribe uh, subscribe and share and listen you know I don't know if you can still set up anonymous stuff on stuff like but if you're afraid that oh he's talking about really crazy radical stuff and I want to bounce back yeah, set up an anonymous account and uh, do it that way uh, if it doesn't do any harm gets the word out and um, I appreciate everybody's contribution to this conversation we are doing magnificently but as our growth escalates, the need escalates, I think, even faster. So get behind that which you treasure. Pay for that which you consume. FDRpodcast.com slash, sorry, uh, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help us out. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. I'll talk to you soon.